it is never more painful than when you are told to take a hike by your alma mater. Because alma mater, oh, yeah. alma mater means dear mother, man. And that's the way we feel about Penn State. It's like your mom telling you to get bent. Like, <laughs> it fucking sucks. We're always collaborating at all times with the universe. Well, cheers. Indeed. This is the first podcast we've ever gotten to do together. I, I know, right? No, that's not true. You were a guest on the obligatory podcast where we tried to talk about Game of Thrones and the audience hated it. <laughs> it was nothing personal against you. It's just, you know, they sports fans it. did not give a crap about Game they of Thrones. They didn't care about it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we talked all day and we were saying about like what we were going to talk about. But honestly, I think like one of my favorite parts about like working with slash for you is just sort of like enduring the collaborative process with somebody who also has to suffer through the same <laughs> thralls. Indeed. Indeed. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I feel like the things that I see us go through for like obligatory and for, you know, the blue white players show, a lot of the times the gripe that I have is that we're not really get, we're in this position where it's like, everybody wants to advertise. Everybody wants to have, you know, not uh, in my experience. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Yeah. They want, they want it to happen for them. They don't want to be a part of doing it. They want it that they just want it to be there. Sure. And we're kind of in this place where they love that it exists and they would love for it to be free. Right. Yeah. yeah. Pretty much the entire media complex right now. Right. That's why Netflix is probably going to have to have commercials on it real soon. Oh, that's going to suck. That's going to be terrible. That's... Well, as you know, though, I mean, this shit needs to get paid for. Yeah. And, you know, how does that happen? Netflix builds, you know, their studio space off the backs of a lot of I mean, they were smart. They kind of invested early in trusting that Netflix Studios could do a lot of things. They did the the, the Marvel series that they were running with, and they first started with like uh, Luke Cage and Daredevil and all of that, uh, like licensing these Marvel television series for Netflix. And and not it didn't start there, but like they kind of backed themselves in this corner where they have to produce all of this stuff to really kind of they can do whatever they want. It's not really a corner when you're basically in this position where you can do whatever you want because you've got the money constantly funding it. They've got yeah. the attention there. I think you're always in the corner though once you become publicly traded, right? Yeah. Because then you become beholden to your ability to pay dividends, which is sometimes not a good position to be in when you're in a volatile market space, especially a creative one. Yeah. So like I feel Netflix's pain in a way, right? Because their subscribership is dropping. Yeah. And that's what they were funding this massive creation of content with. And now that that's starting to dry up, they've got to find a reason to bring eyeballs back. They got to bring subscribers back. And that means they've got to create compelling content. And that goes back to what I said before. Somebody's got to pay for this shit. Right. Yeah. I mean, the, that's like the ultimate catch. Cause we're in this place now where it's like, it's not like the movie studios. I mean, I just listened to, uh, Quentin Tarantino was on the Two Bears, One Cave with Tom Segura. Yeah. And it was actually really good, not from necessarily all the things that he told some like behind the scenes stories, but what was really cool about it was like, or no, it wasn't, it wasn't Quentin Tarantino. It was uh, Kevin Smith. And he was talking about Tom Segura did three short films and he produced them for like 1.2 or 1.3 million or something like that. And uh, for reference, all three? yeah, or all three, of, all three of them. Ah, good for and uh, which is like a lot, but so, 
but Kevin Smith was like, what? who's giving you this money? He's like, oh, I paid for it out of pocket, which obviously if you have the luxury of doing, you can do. But like Kevin Smith, I think like he spent maybe a little over 200000 for the first Clerks movie. And so he's like, which if I had- was a lot of money back then. All right. <laughs> yeah, all right, yeah, right, that tracks. But the idea that, you know, you're in this place where if you could self-fund, obviously that's the way to go because then nobody owns anything and you can do whatever you want. Spe- you know, the internet is the Wild West in that regard still. Yeah, sure. But uh, yeah, like for the smaller time creators, I mean, there's just such a, a spectrum. Like you've got the the top tier movie, like Marvel movies grossing billions of dollars. And then you've got the uh, all the way down to the far end where, you know, smaller companies, smaller media companies or just smaller uh, video aficionados, people that like want to create short films and things like that. Uh, Pablo Lopez, for example, for the Center Film Festival, he does. He's like this really creative person. He's got the organization to get everything done, but the funding to get the stuff done is. I mean, you gotta you want to pay people for their time, and I yeah. I like doing. I've done independent films in the past where the the pay is non-existent, but the requirement to my schedule is so minimally invasive that it doesn't stop me from being like, oh, I want to do it. I can do it as a passion project. The problem with that is without the money to see that through to the finish line, these I have a bunch of you know independent films that I've done that I've never seen the light of day. And right? there were things that were supposed to make festival runs and I've done like a zombie movie. I did like a samurai gangster flick and like all the things that I love to watch and I, and I want to be a privy to. Can I see the samurai gangster flick? I don't know that I've ever seen a finished edit of it. I uh-huh. have all of the footage. I was – tasked with maybe doing a re-edit on whatever it is that I would do with an edit for this film. Gotcha. But it was shot in such a way and in such a time where I had no video inclination or that style of like compositional creation in my blood that yeah. I just never got around to doing it. I have, I'm sitting on the footage. I think I've got it in my Dropbox. Like I would love to do it. It was shot on film. So it's like highly able to be graded and color corrected. I just haven't gotten around to it. And also I'm like – I was probably 23 whenever I did this or 22. So I'm looking at an entirely different human being in this case. But the this like this split between, you know, the top movie studios and the smaller creators is like to some degree you can get away with like how strong of a visionary you are and what you can really kind of piece together. Like I believe in the underdog story that if you can pull it together through a you know, great idea, great vision and you're able to execute on a shoestring budget. That's awesome, but that is not the case for the majority of people. And we, in the event of doing like production type work for you know broadcast shows and for the Blue and White Players show, for example, like we have these avenues for outlet, which are essentially just places. That's like a channel on television that should be getting advertised on. But when we go to anybody to see if they want to advertise, it's like pulling teeth to get them to do it. And maybe there's something to be said for how much like traditional television marketing and advertising has kind of died off and died, you know, gone the wayside. But I don't know if you've noticed in the last three years, but YouTube ads has gotten really, really aggressive. Insane. So that I think is the biggest problem with the entire media industry. Going back to, it's okay if I swear, right? Yeah. Yeah. Going back to somebody has got to pay for this shit. The old model was, there was, imagine like an enormous pie of all the advertising and marketing dollars that get spent in a year from like Audi and Coca-Cola all the way down to like the local mom and pop shop. That got split up so many different ways because it made sense for the mom and pop shop to buy ads in the local newspaper because right. they were serving a local clientele 
And that local newspaper could charge them a premium to reach that audience and therefore have the money to provide local news coverage, right? right? That's been totally obliterated by like three companies. Yeah. Like Google, Facebook, primarily Google and Facebook have sucked all of it up from every level. So now Audi's play, paying the same company that mom and pop shops paying. They're not paying the Center Daily Times to right. do an ad. They're just buying Facebook ads. Yeah, the difference they're doing, is they're doing budget. YouTube ads. <laughs> the difference is the budget, but that tiny mom and pop budget times 40 or 50 kept people employed and created something unique and non-homogenous in the old media ecosystem. Yeah. Now their dollars aren't going to support local content creators. It's going to the same faceless multinational that Audi's spending money with, right? That Chips Ahoy yeah. is advertising with. And so you're not just competing against the, the medium in terms of its distraction, right? Like, so like newspaper was the first to die, like television, radio, they're both getting hit. All the traditional legacy media outlets, they're competing against all the advantages that the, the internet and mobile has over them, but they're actually literally competing for the same dollars. Yeah, now. same pieces of the pie. Yeah, yeah, it sucks. Yeah, I mean, and so- Or I mean, it doesn't. I don't know, I'm a capitalist. I believe in the power of creative destruction. So it's it's like, <laughs> it's not like television or radio in and of themselves are virtuous in some way, right? In fact, I've seen, just recently, I was either reading or listening to someone talk about a study that showed, it might've been on a Rogan podcast, where they talked about how we got demonstrably dumber once television gained widespread adoption. And not just dumber, but our, our civic conversations became far less nuanced. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We got way more sucked into the us versus them binary, and it turned us into more simplistic thinkers. So I'm not saying the internet's going to turn us into any kind of better thinkers, but like TV didn't do us any favors. So my point <laughs> is, it's not like we've got to save any of these legacy, like newspapers. I'm not saying we got to save those as an ends unto themselves. But what I am saying is that, like, you look at that that Amazon television series around Lord of the Rings, right? Yeah, Rings I, of Power. Yeah, like largely panned, from what I can tell. I'm sure there were people who watched it. You know me, I'm kind of a crank. I'm not into like a lot of like reboots and sequels <laughs> and stuff. And I am also like a, a really curmudgeonly uh, Tolkien purist. So <laughs> I, you know, I'm not interested in like Amazon fan fiction in the Tolkien universe. If you like that, that's fine. I don't care. I didn't watch it. From what I understand, a lot of other people didn't watch it. Amazon sunk half a billion dollars into making that show, and it doesn't matter whether it's a failure or not. That's why right. Amazon found that between the couch cushions. Right. And so when all of this money, production money, marketing money, the talent, resources, it's all being concentrated at the top, and the system is so top-heavy to the point where there's no consequences. There's no consequence for failure. I can spend half a billion dollars on a television show, greenlight it for five seasons, and if nobody watches it, who gives a shit, right? right? I, because it's it's only on Amazon Prime, which signed up for it to get the free two-day shipping anyway. Like <laughs> the, the video is like a bonus. It doesn't even matter. It puts a ton, a ton of downward pressure on 
any kind of independent content creator who tried to do what we do did with our television show, which was serve a niche audience and independently produce and distribute to a, a, a legacy media platform in right. television. Like when I hear myself describe it this way, You're like I can kick my I'm own like, ass. <laughs> I, I may be the stupidest person in the universe. And if I am, I blame television. <laughs> well, I mean, to your credit, the audience of legacy alumni that would want to watch those kind of niche programming and those kind of shows are not the same people that are maybe going there to There are be a lot of folks my age or older who stop and want to take selfies with me when I'm walking into Beaver Stadium on game day trying to watch a Penn State football game. God bless those folks. I appreciate each and every one <laughs> of the folks in our audience who enjoyed what we did for seven years. Right. Yeah, I, I just think like the real hurdle that I get frustrated with the most is that they know when it comes to video marketing, like the statistics are in, like you need video content to market anything you're doing, regardless of whether or not it really revolves around media in the first place. Like I, I always loved that Gary Vee kind of pointed out, like if you are any business, you are also in the content creation and media business. And yes. I think to me, that seemed like a really foreign concept at first. I'm sure that's the majority of the audience of, of people that would hear that and try to interpret it or interpolate it however it makes sense to them. But TikTok during the pandemic, 1 million percent turned me the fuck around because I'm watching people that are like, I started following people that were like ADHD therapists. Yeah. And uh, I mean, like obviously the algorithm China's got me down pat. They know, they know who the fuck I am. I'm not, I'm not hiding from TikTok. I'm laughing at the notion of ADHD therapists on TikTok. Right, right, right. But That's I mean, great. this is somebody- That's like uh, AA counselors hanging out in your local corner pub. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Hindsight, that is very funny. Uh, but for me, for it to hit me in that regard, it was like, I, and I started to get a few different ones. And I found one that I like is an older gentleman. I don't even remember his name. I just know him when he pops up. And- he would say things that'd be like, oh, you know, like a lot of people that are neurodivergent suffer from this, yada, yada, yada. This is somebody who is otherwise specialing in some field of therapy that could, he could just remain in his office, never do anything. But we're talking about a guy who just because he put it out there into a generation of people that have been diagnosed with it and actually have the ability to like go to therapy themselves or, uh, you know, be diagnosed and be treated for it are coming across it on an app that is oddly enough geared towards people with ADD. But then you get to the, this point where you're like, Oh shit. Like this is a platform that he had to spend nothing to do. It's, you know, set the phone up on a tripod. Like it kind of, in my eyes, dumbed down the level of production that needed to go into like music. I see this with specifically because I, I work with a lot of independent musicians. I work with a lot of uh, larger musicians and they're the, the separation between the two, um, this guy, Bryson Roach, he does, um, I think, I don't know if his brother is, uh, Jacoby Shaddix from Papa Roach, but he does their social media for them. And he's taken on a few other people, their social media accounts for them to help them produce content for it. And just the way music is marketed now, in my eyes, when we started doing covers with Relic Hearts, it was like, this was an easy way for us to do a recording process, get together, film a video and a location cut that together. It goes out to distribution. There's a video and, and audio to go with it. We've got social clips that I can cut out of that to use for like promoting to people, but it doesn't really tell a story. It's just a, a group of people expressing themselves in a different way to cover a different song. Now I want to ask you about this because it, two ideas I had in my head while you were talking kind of dovetail right there. You were talking about the older therapist 
who you locked onto because he said something that resonated with you during COVID on TikTok. Right. Now, that is like, to me, I don't know, like both embarrassing and encouraging that there's somebody <laughs> who's clearly older than I am who is not as right. terrified of this stuff as I am. So I, well, let me stop on that point for a sec. So my wife who works in fundraising and development for Penn State, so big university, has is a massive, unbelievably sophisticated operation to raise money from foundations, businesses, Donors, alumni, alumni, you yeah. name it. They, they go deep into understanding the psychology of their donor population. This is their bread and butter. Right. And she was telling me about this presentation she had a few years ago, and I have fixated on this idea and used it a million times since, so I'm stealing it from somebody. I'm sorry. <laughs> Don't know a who. A it goes unaccredited. Amateurs borrow professional steel. It was the distinction between digital immigrants and digital natives. Okay. And that hit me where I live. And it's talking about the dividing line in terms of your age. And I'm right on it. I'm born in 1979. Late stage Xers, early stage millennials. They, 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 I like I love the idea of it as, as like a micro generation of like, I think it's like 77 to 84, somewhere in there. They call them Xenials. People who can absolutely remember a world functionally without computers. Right. When my brain was doing its fastest, largest amount of growing, there was no, there wasn't even an Apple IIe or a, a Tandy 5000 in the right. house. Right. And by the time I got to college, everybody at Penn State was being issued an email address. Yeah. So I consciously. I can't fucking imagine going to college without having an email address. Well, I actually, I, I had one. I, I had one from home, but only because my dad was, he was a pr pretty progressive adopter of technology. And by the time I was at my junior year in high school, most of us had signed up for the local ISP. Shout out to Prologue. I don't know if they still exist, <laughs> but if they're still kicking in the Mahoning Valley of Eastern Central Pennsylvania, God bless them. <laughs> but I had an email address and I checked it via Eudora. And uh, so when I got to Penn State, I, I, I got an email address. But what I'm saying is I consciously watched that transition happen. And when you're a little kid and you watch your parents or, or who, you know, whoever's bringing you up, the adults around you, you imagine that that is just what the world is like, right? You right. are a kid and then there's grownups and that's the world. And whatever it is the grownups are doing, that's real life. Yeah, it's separate from what I'm doing right now. <laughs> Correct. And we watched real life fundamentally transform consciously. Our brains were changing, but we were still processing it all. If you went about a decade later and you got born, the real life you were observing already had been completely overtaken by the internet. Right. Our way of not just living as a society, but of being fundamentally as humans in the first world was transformed fundamentally by the internet. And so digital immigrants are people who traveled into that world from okay. an earlier Versus time. the natives who were raised And the natives it. are the ones who were raised in it, exactly. And I am fascinated by the varying degrees to which digital immigrants are able to go native. 
And so right. I, one of the things I have found, and I joke about it all the time, practically every one of my friends who is my age has like one tech platform or social media app or something that they just will not use. They, right. they say, like they just won't do it. Like I hate the Facebook. I won't go in the Facebook. <laughs> I don't do the Facebook. I'm all over. I love Twitter. Right? Yeah, that's odd to me I, that you I, love Twitter so much. I love I, I love that. I hate Facebook. I have another friend who won't do uh, who doesn't text. That's just, fucking just don't like sending text. He's kind of broken down in the last few years. You have to. We as a society have decided don't fucking call me if this yeah, could right, be a text right, message. But I mean, he's like forty four and he fought the good fight for like a quarter <laughs> century. So God God bless you, Cam. I know a friend who like won't use like Google Maps or anything. Like yeah. he got us like impossibly lost one time because I told him like, hey, dude, just there's this new website, MapQuest. We'll just get directions. Like, no, no, I don't need that. Of course, right. we ended up in the middle of Timbuktu. So like, and and, and again, we're probably like the most, the most apt to be able to tip to the other side, and go more native than we are immigrant. And so when I hear about somebody who is older than me. He's in his sixties easily. Yeah. And also less, I don't know, like bamboozled and, and scared, frankly, of it. Right. That I am, I, that, I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued because I wonder what the journey was like for that guy to become a TikTok native. And so what I think about it is he is used to processing people who have a hard time with executive dysfunction and coming up with uh, a system in place that helps them get tasks accomplished. And so for him, I would imagine he could have a day full of people he talked to and off the top of his head, it seems like something he might do at the end of his day where he's just like, a lot of times I run into, and he literally breaks down like uh, people who have a problem with this. I, he stands as a testament to the fact that like this dude is out of the generation of people who should give a shit about TikTok, And he leaned in hard to it. Yeah. His videos, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of likes, depending on what the topic material is. And if it resonates, it's a situation where like if you are clicking on a bunch of ADHD oriented material and this dude pops up, you're getting a you know this information upload to you that is like real tangibly new information that is like it feels like it's disruptive to all the, the bad patterns that you have to that you suffer from. And so you know during the pandemic TikTok comes around, I wasn't on it. I was uh, dating a girl who was like, oh, you got to get on it, you got to get on it. I'm like, hey, everybody keeps talking about it and it used to be called uh, musically. Uh, and Gary Vee was like at the forefront of this. Is so that he, right? He starts talking about it. I had the app on my phone still from whenever it was musically, but it, once it updated it to TikTok, it changed to, you know, the name to TikTok. And so I had an account. I was like, all right, this is like, I'm assuming like Vine or something like that, short lived yeah. rip. Uh, and I, I open it up and I'm just, you know, you just kind of start liking and, and scrolling and seeing what you like. You like things you, you think are interesting. You skip past things you don't. And it starts to curate this algorithm of shit that you're interested in. And the rabbit hole is fucking deep. Now, what I was trying to get to earlier was he is this older guy. He's doing this and he is, to me, like sort of breaking the – I was like, what excuse do I fucking have to not do this if this guy can do it? And all he's doing is regurgitating the shit that he's running into in his day that he realizes is like this ongoing problem amongst a a large portion of the people that he probably sees. And so he sits down. He has these uh, you know nuanced little quick – Minute, minute and a half long conversations where he kind of does, you know, this is what I usually suggest to them and that kind of a conversation. And then on the flip side, uh, the quality, what I was going to, what I was getting alluding to with the music side of things, 
music used to be like YouTube was like the end all be all. Well, then YouTube had to start competing with TikTok and they, they launched YouTube shorts. But then they kept the algorithm separate for YouTube shorts and YouTube proper. So you could post a video on YouTube shorts and it would blow the fuck up. But because it didn't link directly to your YouTube channel, there wasn't really a crossover to your main channel that wasn't shorts. So not helpful, which I think they've recently corrected as of like this year. But that idea that, I mean, I'm on my phone, my phone is vertically lined up. I'm going to be looking at stuff like this. I need to start seeing shit like this. So it's shifted the way that I shoot music videos. I shoot a little bit wider now because I want to be able to crop in and have the aspect ratio be on par so that I can have a full body or a full head in the way in the, the shot the way I want it to. But even then I feel like I've been overthinking it because when we do music videos and we put them out, it's like our numbers have never been lower statistically unless we put money behind it to market them and push them to an audience of people that will are more likely to click on them and in, in marketing through Google ads or marketing through Facebook marketplace or, you know, any of is, those number of things. Is but, that because the platform has now grown so much that it doesn't need you as a content creator to create a user base. No, so I it's think that that's it. to the point where it just needs to suck your money out now at this point. <laughs> yeah, maybe, right? It could be. Uh, but I think what the larger thing that it points to is that TikTok put the power of creation, it stripped down the higher production value stuff. Like I still follow guys that have like high production. Uh, like music video directors, this guy Max Moore that I follow, yeah. he shows behind the scenes of how he decided to go about shooting this band in, in a, a big room with a lot of water. It's like, oh, he built a wall inside an inflatable pool, filled it with water, and then had him stand in the pool, and the pool is, is big enough that he's able to get the framing he wants to do the shot. He didn't have to fill a whole room, but it looks like that whenever you're looking at it. So shit yeah. like that, very, very interesting because you can make a, it look like a room and a hallway. A door opens up into a hallway that is also flooded, and all it is is an extra like two feet or something, you yeah. know? Yeah. And uh, But so I, I value high production stuff, but I it shifted everything into – um, there's a, uh, this kid who does a lot of stuff with Jason and Angel at the Happy Valley Song Lab, Eric Damiano. And he is like, he's got, he puts up super impressive numbers on Spotify and on TikTok. And he does things where it's just him lip syncing or singing the song, uh, to the track that he is releasing and it's in different locations. And all you're really seeing is this, like, it's not highly produced. It's a very, very simplified setup. And so to me, it's like it bastardized this need for having high production visuals to accompany your music. It's like the music video is great, yeah. but you're, what are you going to do? How many stories are there that you can possibly tell? You're not reinventing the wheel every time you do a music video. And there are a lot of fucking work production wise, getting a cast crew, everybody together to make it happen. Then the editing process. Production is agonizing. But, it is an agonizingly what's the word I want to use? Um, work intensive process. And no one understands that who doesn't do it. Who doesn't do it. Uh, right. You know, I, when I, I started at Penn state as a film major and it's a controlled major. So you don't get in until after your sophomore year. So I made the brilliant decision to change my major after the fall semester of my junior year of college. In the film? Uh, no, no. Out or of film, film. Okay. out of film, because I was surrounded by people who so clearly had a passion for the industry and the medium that I did not have. Mm. And I realized I, one of these things is not like the others. And that was me. Like <laughs> I just did not fit. I, I needed I to thing. do something else. But in that time I get already gained a deep appreciation for the fact that engineering is architecture. Those are two of the toughest 
most laborious majors on campus. Laborious was the word I was looking for before to describe production. Yeah. Film has actually got to be number three. You've got to produce a 20 plus minute final feature your senior year and you got to do and finance everything yourself and that sucks and it's a lot of work and it's a huge pain in the ass and i mean it will take your heart and soul which is why if you don't have the passion right. you're not going to do it and I, you know people look at video and they realize now that because they can shoot with their iPhones and you know they can plug in little microphones they think that's production I remember having an argument with a, a friend of mine who we served together on the board of a nonprofit and we were doing a local project around a piece of architecture here in town and I wanted to make a promotional video for it and I wanted to hire a professional to come in and do it. And he said, Chris, you are investing way too much time and energy into this. We don't need to go through this rigmarole against somebody who's a and at that time, I knew far less about production than I do now. So I, I, I didn't know how to do it, but I knew what was good and I knew it was bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we didn't need to do any of this. He said, I could go down there with an iPhone and in a total of 35 minutes, produce what you want to pay somebody to take weeks to do. And of course, I knew he, he was couldn't have been more wrong, but I said, that's great news. Right. That's awesome. Love to see it. I can't wait to be proven wrong. Go down there tomorrow with your iPhone. And you know what? Forget 35 minutes. Just get it to me by the end of the week. There still sits in Google Drive today, Johnny, the fucking like 15 raw shitty videos he took with his iPhone, uploaded to Google Drive and immediately came back and told me like, yeah, I, I can't. Right. So that, that drives me nuts that there is this perception that because video production has been democratized by the iPhone, that it's easy to do, you can do it quickly, it, it shouldn't take a lot of time. Sometimes I, I, I wanna just say, okay, I'm gonna make you sit here right. and actually watch how a video is produced and edited, right? Like, it's easy if you're just consuming Netflix Right. On the back, you were just telling me about a, a friend who works on these projects that end up on the high-end streaming services. Yeah, yeah and he's yeah. working eighty-hour weeks. Yeah, man, and for I, I, months. And he's not for months. He's not an idiot. He's a very fast worker. No, he's like sure, super. Sure, like he's, it just he's among the elite of, of his group. Right. Yeah, it's laborious and time-consuming. It just is. There's no other way. No other way around it. Like, yes, we there has been some trade-offs in replacing the you know industrial light and magic model makers of the world the movie industry but like look at how many names are on the credits of a marvel movie right. for the cgi right? right and that's hundreds of people working thousands of hours so i i going back to production value why would that was the other thing i wanted to ask you about i have been on some of your video shoots and I know the quality of work you do, and I know how passionate you are about creating a good product. And doing it right. Yeah. yeah, and you have the ability and you have the knowledge to do it right, which means you know what it takes to do it right and what is involved, like, and you know when it's done wrong. You know when corners <laughs> have been cut. You know when it's been half-assed. Yeah, I, I'm not the friend that people want to go see movies with if I've already seen it because I'm like, look at that fucking cut. Uh, yeah, no. That yeah, pancake they, was yeah, flying yeah, over yeah, there. There's either. no way that pancake dropped right the fuck down like that. I, 
you, you to, to me are somebody, I, I really want to pick your brain about how you're handling exactly what you just talked about, which is, it seems in, to some extent like production quality for this stuff has gone out the window. We expected if we go see a Marvel movie, what we're right? But at the same time, like we'll sit and watch these fucking TikTok videos where somebody sat in front of their lamp in their office with their iPhone like this and recorded themselves lip syncing to a song. So here's my here's my take on it. My hot take is that we've hit sort of that renaissance where we've decided some things do need to be produced like that and some things don't. And then on top of that, we've hit in this shift where, just to go back to music for a second, like we are more interested in maybe hearing the transparent story of an artist who's telling a story. I'll, I'll use this for example, because I'm, I'm kind of going through this in a couple different ways. Uh, Dean Lewis is uh, an artist that I discovered from TikTok, and I discovered him on this video where he's playing a song that he wrote for his dad, who was recently diagnosed with cancer and doesn't have very long to live. Very sad, out of the gate. Just reading that little text, uh, you know, over the audio of his song, you watch this close-up of his dad's face when he hears the first lyrics of the song, and the lyrics are a gut punch immediately. And so it goes viral because, I mean, his dad starts crying Anytime a guy cries or a dad cries specifically, I think you kind of are like, wow, the stakes are fucking high right now. And so when I saw this, like I teared up, I called my dad. I was like, hey, I just wanted to call and tell you I love you. I don't know what you're doing. Just, you know, and so I think it does that to a lot of people. And this was a good camera shot, shallow depth of field, like, uh, you know, a, you know, for the iPhone movie makers, the portrait mode, you know, his dad's in focus, everything behind him kind of just melts away. And. It was a really, really powerful thing. Now, that song is on, uh, you know, the TikTok Hot 100 playlist or whatever of whatever songs are trending on TikTok. And it stemmed from the storytelling aspect of this song that he was about to release. And what's brilliant about that is that it stemmed from all of the right places that you want people to connect with your music. You want them to have a visceral experience when they listen to your music so that they connect to it. And you can't get that if you put out a music video where you try to feed them the narrative that you want them to take in. However, TikTok kind of makes this point, what if you just told the story of where it came from? And so I know a lot of artists are like, this is a song about whatever. So if this resonates with you, click that like button, hope you enjoy it. And then they just play the song. That's like their intro tag, the right mm -hmm. in the song. It's 30 seconds, 15 seconds, you know, it's the, the hook or whatever it is. And so there's this now split where it's like, okay, we appreciate the Marvel movies. Right. And then we also watch the TikTok movies. We've just sort of decided that like certain things can exist as these short form, lower produced, you know, lower, not just they can't be low quality conceptually, like good content still rises to the top. Like that's, that's still the truth. Right. And so a sh you can't save a shitty story with a high production, uh, you know, set of cameras and lights and the whole rigmarole and the crew, but you can have a shitty story. Uh, there was like a snowball fight. This is like maybe three or four years ago. I forget the director. He's like a good action movie director and he filmed a snowball fight scene completely on iPhone and it was edited together, but you have manual controls over some of the functions in the video settings. And so you could do a high shutter speed and make things seem more epic. And yeah. he does his kids in the backyard playing with the snowball and it's every bit of it. I want to say it was Christopher Nolan for all I know. Like it was literally something that was so dramatically cool looking for just being shot on an iPhone. 
and that's like the extent of where it can go. But we've accepted that certain things don't need to be high produced. And in fact, the right story told in a lower budget manner can be funny. There's this guy on TikTok who I sing, I'll sing his fucking praises forever. His TikTok account is uh, Felanius Falafel. And he does this thing as like a blue collar worker where he's got this real Southern draw and he talks and he's like, he pretends off screen that some character who's his boss is be like, hey, we had a really good year this year. We are banging out the production that we need to through the roof right now. We are hitting record numbers. And he's like, and so we wanted to talk about how we could reward you. And what we decided was we're going to give you guys. And he's like, please don't fucking say pizza party. And he's like, we're going to give you a pizza party. And so then he talks off to him and like talk shit. And it's all a bunch of these stories. And I think he eventually like his TikTok blows the fuck up millions of views. He eventually gets fired for something. And, uh, and like the world could not have been quicker to want to fucking support him because he sings the, to the fucking heart of every blue collar or any, you know, grunt retail worker that has to deal with some, he, he like one of the jokes he makes was he joins a retail. He's like, Oh, retail, this should be fucking easy compared to making shovels or whatever the fuck he was doing. And then you get some asshole Karen that comes in. He's like, give me a fucking break. Like it literally exists everywhere in every market. And so this, and it's like a green screen thing. So like his face is kind of blurred out a little bit on the edges. Cause it doesn't quite key him out yeah, perfectly. Yeah. But he, you know, his background is like a bath and body works whenever he's in the retail store or like, a shop uh, whenever he's in the manufacturing plant. Yeah. There's like an intentional kitsch value to that. Right. 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 Like the, like the, Low production quality in that situation is a feature, not a bug. Right. Right. But I look at like the whitest kids, you know, did you ever watch that? They were like a score. Like they were kind of on par with like a uh, Derek comedy or like Saturday night live, just like sketch. Comedy. I mean, I'm aware that they exist. I haven't really watched it. And they had some like really funny shorts, but they were produced and not maybe necessarily overly well, but they were funny and they were there. I mean, they were only like two or three minutes a clip and they just kind of told these off the wall, like somebody, there's a group of people sitting in a room and there's a piece of shit on the, on the fucking office table. Okay. And everybody's like, did, did somebody shit on this floor, like on this table? And like, he's like, no, no, no. Like, and he just wants to go on with the meeting. Cause it was like very <laughs> clearly him. And like, just silly premises like that. These were not like high end production, like Saturday night live sets, but they were like able to kind of capture the lunacy of just silly moments that, akin to that, that we've run into. And so, yeah. So but what I was saying with like TikTok, it just feels like we have accepted this new renaissance of the way we create media and what its intent and purpose is. And so I, like, I personally, I'm a fucking like aficionado nut for having high production quality to things. And that's almost in everything. Same. Like same. It's a curse, isn't it? Right. For sure. But I'm not a purist about it. Like I can appreciate like when it comes to music, I loved Linkin Park growing up and those were like heavily processed songs and tracks. Like, uh, I like this band, bring me the horizon. And uh, I happened to be in the studio before one of their big records had come out and it was called, uh, Sempaternal. And right before it comes out, I'm getting to listen to it in house of loud in New Jersey with David Bendith, who's just like a brilliant fucking producer. One of my bucket list producers, I would love to do a record with someday. And he's playing us these songs. And I'm like, wow, this is fucking massive. Like it's so epic. And he's like, yeah, there's a uh, 144 tracks in that, in that, uh, that on that song. And I'm like, where the fuck did they go? Like, to me, that makes no sense. And so we go into the giant, you know, 256 channel console room 
And he's like, okay, so one track is just going to be this, like, he's just lightly picking this note and it just, it sounds eerie and I like it. So I'm going to manually fade it up in this part right here where things kind of die down and, and fill this space. And then I'm going to back right back off of it. And yeah. then that's it. And that exists as a whole fucking track on that song. So now I'm like, oh, I've been thinking about this all wrong. I'm thinking we have to, every track has to be from the start of the song to the end of the song, it's intent and purpose in the song, except for like something like a solo or something that would only be in a section. Yeah. But the reality is, you know, Billie Eilish does a song and she's got 20 different harmony vocal takes that are panned in all kinds of different directions and leveled down and, and, you know, pitch corrected and taken care of in all these ways that really kind of fill out a wall of sound. And then you're like, oh, here I am being a dickhead, just like double tracking left and right for a lead, left and right for a harmony, left and right for uh, another harmony. And then there's six vocal takes and that's the whole song. But I wanted to know, like, but when I listened to the difference between records that I'd done, like some of the first records we'd ever, my bands had ever produced, I was like, there's just something different. And when you don't have the language and you don't have the know-how, you don't know what is missing or how to make it fucking better in the first place. So you're just kind of suffering. And so in the spirit of Rick Rubin saying that, you know, we're always collaborating at all times with the universe, that is, I, that couldn't have been something that rung more true for me because every studio I went into, I absorbed something and every artist I ever worked with, I absorbed something. Other, every songwriter I've worked with, I'm like really interesting. And I know songwriters and musicians in general are some of the most neurotic fucking people you can imagine. And that goes from like, uh, my buddy Alex Goot, love him to death, super like introverted and like neurotic and meticulous and very specific about how he likes to do things. And to his credit, that's how he built, you know, four, four and a half million subscribers on YouTube. Which allows him the freedom and flexibility to indulge those character traits. Right, for sure. Like it's like that you can't level of meticulousness would not be tolerated. If he could not bring if to the table the credibility exactly. of his 4 million subscribers, which allows him to say like, no, shut up. You're wrong. I know what I'm doing. And he would, he would Let never me be say meticulous. Like that, but he, right, it, right, right. But he kind of does. Yeah. He kind of does. Yeah. When he called me to first do some video work with him about a year ago, he was like, I got this band that's like giving me shit about this thing I want to do. And I'm like, uh, excuse me, I'm responsible for billions, billions with a B views on youtube like i think i know what i'm talking about now the danger in that I put is my pants on one leg at a time just except, like everybody else except after i put my pants on i make gold records right know, like right, right yeah. yeah right okay so and, and so to his credit it's like that can be a, a vice and a virtue the vice side of it being when you rest on your laurels and you're so convinced that i've done it this way before and this is how it has worked in the past and this is what i think is this is just what tends to work best for me that is not a catch-all for what can and should be done for you sure for for the next person or every artist like it really really does vary and the landscape shifts just like in film just like in you know netflix series um you know you know now now it's like uh, when we were talking earlier about the that money has to come from somewhere to pay for this shit the idea is i think and sadly we have to hit some sort of an equilibrium and it looks like it's starting to happen in the form of YouTube ads, Netflix having commercials going on. And it's the most frustrating thing ever because it felt like with Netflix and, you know, uh, Hulu, if you bought like an ad-free account, 
You were spared having to deal with this shit anymore. And honestly, I think that's almost the fucking point. If you want to see the money raised for this, I will pay 10 bucks a month for a service to not have to deal with commercials anymore. I've done it since the beginning. I could have Hulu for $6.99 or I could have Hulu for $12.99 and no commercials. Guess what I fucking opted for? There's nothing more irritating. Like I don't want – we're – my generation and the next generation after us, we are so fucking sick of being sold things because it's – everywhere we're sold shit everywhere you can't watch a movie without being like oh i guess fucking pepsi sponsored that or oh so i just watched spirited uh, uh on apple tv plus and it's ryan reynolds and will ferrell oh was it good and it's i haven't got yeah yeah i thought it was good and okay. and it's towing a very interesting line you're telling charles dickens you know story again and it's like i've i've already seen the original and I, and I really like Scrooge. Like, how are you going to ask, it? how does it track to Scrooge? They fucking pull it into the mix. They make it meta commentary. They're okay. like, yeah. and so when you do that, you're like, okay, I am watching something different. And so now I'm getting a fresh take on an old classic in a way that is very, very interesting. But one of the things you see is you're like, oh, there's a, they're lingering on this Sephora shot where they're standing in front of it for a little while. And then, and then like not even, <laughs> not even two beats later, Will Ferrell's <laughs> like, oh yeah, we got to deal with them and like calls it out. And it, that to me is fucking hilarious. And I think if the advertisers think that they're getting a break in the future, they're not, they're going to be the fucking butt of the joke because people are, we, we know we like, you can't fool me anymore of where this money is coming from. But stuff still needs to get marketed and content still needs to be made. And so people got to get paid somehow. I, and, and that again is to me, the conundrum of the time with media, along with what you just mentioned, the meta commentary on Scrooge, one of the other trailing effects of mass media, especially video mass media, is that I think we have reached a point where we've had so much of it and we have now had a couple of generations raised on what I call uniform stimuli. If you were born in the backwoods of the Pacific Northwest or in Los Angeles, California, or in Lehighton, Pennsylvania, in the early 1980s, you watched the same Transformers cartoons. Right, probably, right, right. Right? So the same websites can sell you the same $55 Optimus Prime t-shirt because <laughs> of the value of the nostalgia. Right. But I just saw a trailer before I came in here today. There's another damn Transformers movie coming out. It's 2022. <laughs> like, meta commentary. Why are we doing this? Because we ran out of original shit to make. Yeah. We made a ton of it. And now it feels like the only things we can do are stranger things. And I like stranger things. It hits on all the nostalgia undertones. It's, of the it's Goonies a nostalgia and play. It's meta commentary. It's Marvel movies. Where do we go from here? Like, right. is the is the nostalgia play to my kid when she is an adult going to be a reboot of the reboot they made right. to, to get me to take her to the movie theater when she was a kid? So we're just going to like like one generation after another of analog media where every time you copied a VHS tape, the signal quality got a little shittier. Right. We're just going to keep getting like worse and worse Optimus Primes and Stormtroopers into perpetuity until like the, the bomb drops or like an, an even worse pandemic wipes us all out. I, I ask myself these questions. Like, have we hit the wall 
and crossed some sort of creative Rubicon where there's just nothing else to do with mass culture. There's never going to be a next Jaws or Star Wars. I'm talking 1977. Star Wars. (laughs) Because that was a perfect storm inflection point of technology and society and, and and that's it. And now it's done and we did it and, and, and it's irreplicable because those two films created the blockbuster and we now live in the future they created. And in that future, there is no next. Well, we're kind of living through that whatever. now anyway. Like, uh, so I would say like a decade ago, I met with- uh, I took this on a real hard left turn, by the way. No, 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 no. Sorry. Actually, it led me to an excellent point. Uh, so I, when I was growing up in high school, I was a big fan of drive through records. This is like Newfound Glory- and just bands of their hidden in plain view, senses fail. Like these are bands that I grew up listening to just outside of high school, early high school, post high school. And uh, I had the luxury of meeting, his name is Richard Rains. He was the owner of Drive Through Records with his sister, Stephanie. And uh, I, I mean, like him or love him, or love him or hate him, he's, he's got uh, he's got very nuanced opinions of people that people have of him. But one of the things that he really kind of said that really stuck out to me was like, it's not like you can reinvent the wheel, like songs are being done. So what we can do is there was a song, I can't remember who it was by, but it was like, uh, I'll have to think of the song. My point being like, he wanted, shit, where was I going with that? He, what were you talking about right before that? Man, you got to call your 65-year-old ADD counselor <laughs> yeah, on yeah, TikTok. Yeah. Pull him up right now. He probably scroll has fi- here. 15 seconds of therapy for you. Um, I was talking about uh, uh, blockbusters. And, oh, okay. Perfect. This is yeah. it. So he was- Movie on, blockbusters, not the stores. And so one of the things he was like, one of the things he said to me was like, we are in a singles market. Like I'm sitting here in my brain. I'm like, oh, we're a band. We write music. Bands write albums. And that is so far from the truth of where it was a decade ago, 15 years ago. And it's, and it's, it's just in the same spot now. So, and and it's evolved and and changed in various ways, but his point was you need a single before you can sell the album. And that's kind of been true anyway, right? Like we, there for a while, the formula was like track two, four, seven, and 11 were the single tracks on an album. So Mm -hmm. Taylor Swift record, when her album 19, whatever, 85 came out or whatever it was, that album, the singles for it were two, four, and like like 11 is like a later single that you use to push before she goes out on another tour and then gets ready to go back into songwriting, come out with the next record, you know, a year or two from now. Um, that is kind of the echelon of bullshit that we have to deal with now in the filmmaking world because you've got your blockbusters. Now it's like you have to have a blockbuster like blockbusters make the movie stars. Like if you are nobody, you get sure. cast in a Marvel movie or a Star Wars show or whatever. Like that's it. You're you're set. You're a household name at this point. But that is kind of what it shifted towards. Making things have to be in order for you to really kind of grow or, or really kind of flourish. I mean, do you, I guess that's probably still true. I wonder to what degree it's true only because of inertia. I, like I feel. Like, there is very little pop culture. There is very little mass media that is really 
uh, inspiring isn't the word I want to use, but it's not, it's not conjuring emotion in people anymore. It's, 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 it's exhausting. It's, it's like, you're, we, like you're talking about Marvel movies. And, and I love them. Like I can't talk shit. Star like I, I've Wars seen shows, And already like, ah, like I can just feel like my shoulder muscles tensing up. Like it was such a cool experiment to try and successfully pull off to do a decade worth of an interconnected cinematic universe right. with familiar characters in a new way new life breathed into them by really charming idiosyncratic performances by really talented actors with great big budget special effects and they stuck the landing and it was an entertaining journey that yeah. you could take not only as a viewer but because it spanned so much time you could bounce your own life up against it like i can remember like my wife and i were dating when we saw our first Marvel movie and like we had to get a babysitter before we went to go see Endgame, right? Like and, and it, but that was cool. It was a it was a it was a deck it was a cultural decade. But now it just keeps going and they just keep sending more and more of this shit down the pipe and it's not like I don't like some of it, but it doesn't make me feel the same way and I am left with no anticipation for what comes afterwards. Like what is the next thing? going to be in terms of not only how we entertain ourselves, but this stuff is so important for the way we construct our shared identity. Yeah, that's totally, I mean, from the philosophical perspective, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, like, we're, listen, we're at a point where we want to be, we we're, we never don't want to be entertained. I mean, TikTok and, you know, Marvel movies alike are are still this grand form of escapism, whether it's short form or long form, but there's just, like I said, like I feel like we're hitting this sort of that equilibrium we're gonna hit with the advertisers when it comes to paying for shit. That's gonna have to, we're gonna have. There's gonna have to be some really nuanced discussions that take place on how we do that because it just makes everything else underneath the top three to six companies that can pay for everything. Yeah, you're you're behind the eight ball from the like the minute you start. If you want to be a filmmaker today, you better have some real fucking grit a lot of fucking talent and like it doesn't happen by accident and almost I kind of want it to be that way because I don't want everybody who thinks they can pick up a camera to be able to make a short film that's cohesive yeah, like I, sure. that, in a perfect world sure maybe but that can't be the that can't be the status quo and so I look at like like me at some point I do want to direct like my a, a short film on my own. I, I'd like to, I want to build my acting reel. I want to do all the things. That's the ADHD brain in me. Right. But like the reality is the only thing stopping me from doing those things is being in the mix. Like if I'm not in a place where I can do those things, it is easier to do a lot of things musically in Nashville, but Nashville's also saturated and also yeah. the internet exists. And, and I have too many examples of the proof of like a good concept or a, a, an excellent execution on an idea can go so much further than being in, you know, Los Angeles or being in Nashville or being in, you know, Portland or any, you know, A or B market where you're out there able to kind of p pound the pavement. Like long gone are the days where you can just like fly or a town and have a bunch of people show up at your show later that night. Like people, we have shit to do. I've got TikToks to watch. If I've got, if I'm comfortable, I'm not leaving my fucking bed. If I'm on TikTok, I could be on this thing for mm, three, four hours if I feel like fucking up my whole day. Is that is this sustainable in your mind? No, of of course not. And so the equilibrium has to be how we bring how we 
sew all these together because like, like what's going to happen? Like we, again, as a society, right? We just can't keep subsisting off 15 second dance craze and lip sync videos forever. Right. Or can we, well, I don't there, even there, know. It's more this, nuanced I'm a digital that. immigrant. I'm scared of all this stuff. It terrifies you, me. All people shouldn't be because I think I, when I, when I talk to you, the things that I, I would sing your praises about whenever we're talking about things that you were very strongly opinionated on, you're also well-spoken. Like you have this killer vocabulary. So I'm like, to me, if you came across my TikTok feed, there's a guy I've, I follow who just does uh, straw hat goofy. I think is his 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 TikTok name. I know, I know, I know, I know. That's just as bad as like <laughs> Devil Hunter sixty nine shooting you in Battlefront or whatever. But like this guy, he sits down and he talks about these very nuanced ideas of things that he likes about Marvel movies. And then the long the 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 ramifications of that is when Disney opened up that Star Wars like themed hotel. Yeah, they invited him and his family to come and stay for a week. Yeah, free of charge. They wanted them to come down and do a review of the place. So he's like, I'm a huge Star Wars Marvel guy. Disney owns all this shit. Yeah, I'm going to go down and do it. And so like just all of it is too much for me, Johnny. Like just having a conversation like we are right now where you're like, yeah, there's this guy who's a really deep philosopher. His name's Hot Dog Lawnmower 32. <laughs> it's like it's just my brain just struggles to process it. And I want to process it because neuroplasticity is so important, right? I'm like, that's a neuroplasticity, Chris. You just a Hot Dog Lawnmower 32 probably has something really profound to say if you can right. just get past what to you seems like a silly name. And maybe that's your, just discri that's your discrimination because you're a digital immigrant asshole and just like get with the times. But I'm, I'm also an immigrant in that regard. Like I'm still young enough that when the internet came out, my first email came from a fucking AOL disc, you know? And that was how I had, I what, mean, 30 God, days of free God, internet God bless you. How old were you when that happened? I want to say like third, yeah. 15, okay. 12, 11, yeah. All right. somewhere around in there. Yeah, I mean, you're not, I am not that much older than you. No. You are, you are blessed to look younger than you are. I'm not going to out your age to the audience, but. Um, 37 and. Not even remotely proud of it. I, I don't well, know how the fuck I'm it. still yeah. here at 30. Good, good for you, man. The, the best age to be is the one you are. Because mm -hmm. you've never been that age before and you never will be again. again so enjoy sure. what's new. I mean, I mean it. That's true. But uh, and, and certainly you have no other choice. And it beats the alternative. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not so, being so don't bitch about it. You know, like with age comes wisdom, and you had your chance to be young and, and enjoy. And back then you weren't wise. So but, enjoy but, but, your chance so to be let me ask you, wise. What yes. is the what is the big like if I went through your phone, I downloaded the app and I started your account and I said, hey, just when you're fucking bored, just when you have five minutes just to fuck around and scroll around, the thing is it will learn you and it will find things that you want to see and put it in front of you. And the thing is yours is – it's almost like – you know how you like you're really – I don't know about you, but if you've got nudes in your phone, you're very leery about showing anybody your photos album on your phone. You're like, hey, don't – yeah, don't go left I, or right. I, don't scroll left yeah, or right. I, I mean, That's a new generation. I get that. Yeah, but yeah. TikTok is almost the same way because what you're going to scroll through, you're really kind of getting an insight into what it is that they are clearly interested in that pops up in their, you know, on their feed. So it's like this super personal thing to show people because you're like, I don't want them to know that I'm a big fucking Marvel and Star Wars fan. And also I like, you know, hot goth girls like that's none of his business. But like. There's so much stuff in there. There's so much information in there. I, I get like random things where like people show me how to do 
like carpenters will be like, oh, this is the way to take a fucking nail out. Anybody's ever told you to do it any other way? They're morons. This is it. Do and then they show you something. You're like, how the fuck did I go 37 years and not know that that's the way to take I, a nail? I out agree. I like that stuff. I like that stuff on YouTube. Let, let, let me ask you. You this. are the generation that gets it on Instagram like three weeks later. Yeah. Yeah. I don't like or it. Twitter. Yeah, yeah. I do like Twitter. Um, well, I don't know. I don't like Twitter. I think it's terrible. It's, I used to say on the obligatory podcast all the time that I think the three worst inventions in no particular order of mankind were uh, the atom bomb, mustard gas, and Twitter. But, <laughs> you know, whatever. Like, we, we all have our vices, I suppose. Let me ask you the 800-pound gorilla question. Like, does it bother you that that sophisticated profile of you is being built ultimately and built for and shared with a totalitarian government. I think the fact that anybody with a huge could, military and a nuclear arsenal and, and, and a, a philosophy, a millennia old philosophy of total control. You're talking about China. I am. I would say it's foolish to pretend that I don't live on the planet that I do. And uh, I think insofar as I would love a, a lot of things to not be the way they are, I can't really change them. And like, like I can't change the fact that TikTok has really kind of revolutionized the way that most people, most, there's a lot of people on that fucking platform, yeah. the way they process media and the way they watch things. And so to me, I can so your point abhorrently is it's, fucking it's, eject it's, to it and say, I'm not going to partake in it, but it doesn't change the fact that there's something valuable here. I can't change the fact. I mean, if you it's think like it's like global warming, it's like Chris, this shit's happening. So just enjoy that it was fifty-one degrees for the Michigan State game. Right? Yeah, yeah. Because okay. you're not going to get that any year in the future. In fact, <laughs> right, it's actually right, going to yeah, be right. twelve inches of snow. You're going to have to buck and buckle up. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, like, I, I just think that, and that's a fair answer. I wasn't trying to be. I was like, you got to wake up, bro. Kind of no, guy. No, I was. I, I was just curious. For I your think answer. that's that's the equilibrium we have to head towards. Is where we do all kind of wake up and say, look, like. There are certain things I'm going to tolerate and stand for and certain things that I'm not. The data harvesting, if it's not TikTok, do you think Facebook Marketplace isn't doing it? Like the fact that they got busted for selling information to Cambridge Analytica, yeah, like, right, it's right. already happening on our own soil. So it's like, okay, so how much does this digital imprint really tell you about me that is adversely able to make you have some sort of an impact on me? I would argue that it's actually very little because to, uh, to be able to – execute on anything that could target me specifically doesn't target everybody else. It can't like I'm, I'm so isolated. All this information is so you can know my spending habits market. Every time I talk about buying a new set of fucking lights, I start getting an ad from GVM on Instagram because my phone's constantly listening to me. And it's like, that's not going to change the fact that their lights are too fucking expensive. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to blow $500 on this one led light. Yeah. I would love to do it in a perfect world. I would, but I can't. So them having the information is just their opportunity cost of saying like, hey, we're going to collect this data and it's just so we can give you more of the things that you want to see. It's like I think you you are either too dumb to be able to have an opinion for yourself and so you can't be, oh, I can't be stopped. They gave me this ad. Fuck, I clicked it and I bought it off Amazon. Like, Or you say, yeah, that would be nice. Kind of fucked up that it's listening to me and it knows that. I didn't even think I said that thing out loud. How does it know to market that to me? But 
There is the view, right, that, that is just, that's just convenience. Yeah, right? yeah, like of course, right. that's how they market it. They would never tell you like, hey, we've uh, infiltrated your data and all of your spending habits and we're actually watching what you're watching online and we've decided that we're going to curate this list of things that are going to be yeah, marketed to you yeah. over the Show next couple months. Show me the new Eagles hoodie. I don't want an ad for like fucking Uggs or something, right? right? Yeah, right. like this is going to be, I'm still probably not going to buy it, right? But but the same, you watch somebody else's Facebook page and you scroll down through and you see the shit that they're being advertised on the sidebars and stuff. It's like, this is not what I'm being advertised. And so it is kind of different. Now, insofar as that causes echo chambers and people can kind of get indoctrinated into thinking like, I mean, that's how you get on some sketchy forums and all, yeah, yeah, the proud I mean, boys all of a sudden. And yeah, all that <laughs> stuff, the, the, the way it affects society and the way it affects our politics. I mean, God, that's an entirely different conversation. Can of worms. Sure. I, I still come back to the fact that everything you're describing, like scrolling through Facebook, looking at Instagram, being on TikTok, looking at Twitter, all those things are time consuming. Yeah. And practically all of it, is McDonald's for your mind. Yeah, you gotta be able to compartmentalize. Like to me, or, I- or, Like why even do it at all? Like why? Like, I mean, what if I just, like I'm not gonna eat McDonald's at all. Well, I'm you're not gonna, gonna be Black it. Panther either. You gotta not watch the movie because it's like, it, like to me, I can't separate because I say, you are, you, I want to be entertained. I want the escapism when I want it. Some people that vice is video games. Some Movie's people it's like fucking drinking. Two hours and it happens once. And I intentionally go there with an understanding of how long it's gonna be. And it, when it gets to the end, if I liked it and I say, damn, I wish this movie could go on another two hours. It doesn't. They just kick <laughs> right? me it's out of the theater done. and that's yeah, not. It's but over. It, when I'm on any one of these platforms, it's like giving me like insidious morphine drip of dopamine. Oh, of course. And it can just suck me in forever. And, and the, to me, the worst part about it is more than half the time. It's not making people feel good. It's making them feel worse. I quit Twitter for as much as I enjoyed it, cold turkey, at the end of last football season. Now, as a caveat, I liked being on Twitter, and I still enjoy this aspect of it, in that it allowed me to interact with the audience of the show and an audience of Penn State football fans. Right. I, I liked that. I really enjoyed whether, you know, people were actually generally pretty respectful to me. I think I get, I think I don't get a ton of Twitter trolls because of the way I tweet. Like, right. I, I you use, seem like somebody who like, I'm not going to pick a fight with him because he's well, going to be a pain in the ass to make feel bad. I use like all 240 <laughs> characters and I'm like properly punctuating everything. Right. And I'm right. Like, I'm basically like writing blog posts in threads. Twitter format. And I think most people just don't know what to do with it. Like they are looking for somebody who's going to be like, Erg, Penn State's better than Michigan, duh. And then they can start a fight with I can, that person. I can talk shit on that guy. Yeah, so I don't attract those people. So I don't have to, I mean, I, we get weirdos and trolls or whatever, but I, I don't get a ton. I enjoyed that. But just the overwhelming flood of daily negativity. And again, remember, I'm a digital immigrant. So I am from a world that when I see somebody type something out on social media, in my brain, it is as if that person was actually saying that in a real life situation to me and I, or, or to anyone. And my brain is coded from the playground, right? Like my brain is coded from, holy shit. Like that guy just said something that would get you. Timmy just paused Jack absolutely off the swing. Yeah. That that would get you absolutely murdered after school if you yeah. just said it, which my lizard brain says that guy is either a like badass ninja 
or a complete psychopath because only somebody who was willing to either fend off or take the beating that comes with making that comment would say something like that. A digital native realizes how disposable and meaningless all of this shit is. So they'll like get on call of duty and tell total strangers when they're 12 years old, they're gonna like fuck their mothers and shit like that. And they don't think about it at all, at all. It's totally consequence free. And so my di digital immigrant brain is like reeling like, oh my God, the world is, full of ninjas and psychopaths and it's not it's just full of digital natives for whom meaning has been totally stripped from language because uh, the meaning uh, hasn't the, the, the medium is the message who is that that guy well wow, damn it uh, um I can't think of the guy who's famous for saying that. Medium is the message. So like some com professor somewhere is punching himself <laughs> in the face that I can't remember. So anyway yeah, it's um, a value system that needs to be addressed, really. And and that is so that something made me that quit Twitter cold turkey, is what I'm saying. The negativity of it. And the only way I got back into it, well, I don't want to cut you off, but I'll tell you how I got back into Twitter if you want to hear it. I do want to hear it. Okay. So I'm sorry for cutting. Because I can't I can't get back into it. I have an account, I've had an account for years. Okay, and I'm so like, I don't know if I'm just not hitting it or the idea of telling my every thought doesn't really placate my brain in terms of I'm like, I, I'm sure people don't want to hear what the fuck I'm thinking. Um, so I, I read, I forget where I saw it, but I think it was like a blog post or something. It was a really thoughtful, I thought useful meditation on how to get the most out of Twitter, which is kind of to your point about the stuff that's on TikTok. There's a lot of good information in there. there right. A lot of smart thinkers. You're going to have to weed through some bad shit, of course. information. And this person said, oh, you know what? I remember it was uh, it was the Grow the Show podcast. So shout out to Kevin and Grow the Show. He was talking about how to use Twitter to promote a podcast. And okay. he, was, he was going through like, I know Twitter, it's like just a cesspool of toxicity. Here's what you do. And he gave three really good guidelines. He said, number one, give yourself a hard time limit. Like you, you, you're, I'm going to use for X number of minutes a day. This, that's you, this is what I was going to say earlier. This, I'm, I'm you, done. You give yourself this fucking segmented time. Like to me, which I'm is like, hard to do if you're if you have an addictive personality and that that dopamine. Bro, is I'm telling, I can't tell you how many times my feet have fallen fucking sleep taking a shit looking at TikTok because I'm leaning the fuck over, and then I step back up and I'm like, oh fuck, I can't stand for like 35 that seconds. Dopamine addiction. But that's how I know that's my moment to be done. Like right, that yeah, half well, hour is all. Yeah, I'm getting. Well, I mean, kudos to you at least. I mean that that you know you can look over the edge of the abyss and like tip almost all the way over. And then, you know, uh, like moved away from the microphone. Sorry about that. <laughs> and, and then pull yourself back. But he said, give yourself a time limit, but that's not enough. You've got to, you've, you've got to train the algorithm to feed you positivity and to yeah. weed out the negativity. So he and that's said, trained. That's a learned behavior use, from the algorithm side of things. Use Twitter as a tool. If you're in a business where you're communicating with a customer base, like, like I was with an audience, you can use it for that. So follow stuff related to that. Follow accounts related to your subject matter and people who cover that subject matter or who follow that subject matter. And then anything else, like, you know, I, I, I follow a lot of like, you know, business strategy and sales folks on Twitter. And then he said, pick one or two things that you're interested in. So I, Philadelphia sports and like science are two things I'm interested in. Yeah. So Philly sports, science, sales, business, Penn State football. 
That's it. If you see a tweet from an account that is not related to those topics, mute it. Just relentlessly mute any account that is not producing content that's serving the purpose for which you are using Twitter. And I started doing this. And I will tell you, I'm not going to name them, but I found a couple of people who are in the Penn State football media who I think might just live like really miserable personal existences because you know how you see tweets that people you follow have liked? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I would see these tweets from accounts I wasn't following and everyone was just so like miserable and acerbic and nihilistic and made me want to go slip my wrist. And then I was like, oh my God, these people are aggregators for accounts I should mute. And so <laughs> I just created a personal rule that whenever I logged into Twitter, if I saw on a tweet that one one of those accounts had liked it, I would mute the account. And I did this relentlessly for like two or three weeks. And I created a Twitter algorithm and I, I muted a few words. You, cur I, you curated an algorithm. I, 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 mu I, 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 I muted like Trump and like, I, like Roe and abortion. And, right. and like, I had the most beautiful non makes you want to kill yourself feed. Like it was crazy. When the Dobbs decision came down, do you know what I had? I had people giving me like recipes and talking about like, but you know, best strategies for creating a click funnel on your website and like updates on the Phillies. It was like, this is great. This is great. I can consume news that is provided in greater depth and with more permanence on other platforms. I guess it wasn't like I didn't know the Dobbs decision came down. Right. I just didn't have to watch every person like strangers coming into my life, screaming at each other about it. And again, my stupid digital immigrant lizard brain interpreting all of it. It's like totally serious thinking like, oh my God, right. if these two people are in the same room, they're going to fight. One of them's going to kill each other. When in reality, if those two people were in a room, they might not be comfortable with one another, <laughs> yeah, but, but it would be two human beings having an actual in-person interaction that would play out totally differently. And so I just stripped all of it out. I stripped all of it out of the app and it's the only way I will use it. I will never, ever, ever go back to Wild West toxicity Twitter. I just, I, I just can't, I can't even imagine why anyone would do that to themselves. It's like opting into self-abuse. Have you Have you heard anything of, Olivia, this is for you too, actually. Have you had any experience with the app Be Real? Of course not. I don't even know what the hell that is. <laughs> Do you, Olivia? Yeah. So I just have the first experience. <laughs> of course. I've never even heard of this fucking thing. So it gives you a prompt at a time where you can post every day. And you, if you post every day, it's like you can't bullshit. You can't show the highlight. You just show what you're doing right now. It's be real. You. It's not the fucking highlight reel. It's whatever you're doing right now. So if I'm a musician and I'm killing it to 10,000 people and I walk off and it's me in the shower later and it gives me that alert and I've got however many minutes to be able to like post my, my photo or clip or whatever from the day you can, you can only take a video like actively in the app, I think. Yeah. You can only take a picture or video when you're in the app. And it does the front and the back screen. So there's like, there's no bullshitting this app. Like who Christ. you, uh, yeah, but like 
that is the kind of shit that leads towards the equilibrium of like, okay, this person who's the absolute fucking curmudgeon and you're like, this dude must be fucking miserable. I bet he is one way online and a totally different way sure. whenever he's not there, right? So this kind of eliminates that. It's like, okay, what are you doing right now at 345? You're like, oh, uh, fuck. All right, I'll take a picture of I'm here. Like for me, it might not be so bad because I'm always in a fucking production area usually. Yeah. But like things like that start to come up and so I, I'm saying that like that is where the equilibrium heads. But you've already just proven to me that through your Twitter <laughs> tirade, what brought you back to it is 100 percent what you could do through TikTok by curating it. It's just instead of blocking, you yeah. just fucking scroll past it. I, I yeah, as I was talking, I'm like, he's going to turn around and make that. A hundred percent. I saw myself teeing myself up. For but it, to me, so. like I love the I, I run into other podcasts, like other podcast shorts. And you're you're looking at just sort of an excerpt from the uh, conversations being had and. You know, maybe it's uh, Logan Paul or Jake Paul, or maybe it's somebody who's there. Two dudes that are talking about Marvel movies, and it's just them sitting there talking. Did you know this crazy fact about whatever? Like, they've gotten it curated to almost a science when it comes to how you want to be able to engage with that kind of shit in the first place. That if only the topics that I'm interested in are things that pop up. Well, then if I've curated a bunch of shit through music videos and other artist things, and I like interesting paint, I like interesting art, I like all kinds of mediums of, of creation, then there's now like this very expansive means of me being able to be introduced to different things. And if I can couple that with like a, every now and again, I'll get a random bit of my thing. I don't know how this is for you, Olivia, but for my, my, I get a lot of fucking like spiritual tarot card readers for some reason on mine. And I don't know if that's everybody, but my experience on TikTok is I get one of those every like fucking five videos. And I've started to like scroll past. I'm like, come on, this is like, this is too much. Like, I want to hear what it's telling me, but. Yeah. So they're reading the tarot cards on TikTok. Yeah. And they don't put any hashtags or anything. They're like, if it found its way to your page, this is for you. Like, it's totally <laughs> oh, fucking, of course it is. How clever. Uh, yeah, exactly. And, you know, props to them because they're fucking selling their own personal. There's one girl who's got like a couple hundred thousand followers. She sells her own tarot decks. That's a fucking business platform. Yeah. And I look at the, okay, so now we are located in the affinity connection offices. I look at Greg and Ben, these dudes that are like powerhouses at what they do in their niche markets. And I'm like, yeah. Ben, you're selling this book. Great. You made this goodbye to KCF tech post. Great. And maybe that could have sold some books. Great. But his value isn't in the book that you're going to get one time. It's like people, I don't, a lot of people, and I can't speak for everybody, obviously, but like for me, value is where we place it. And if the value is immediate in that he's talking about something and I can see what the title subject is on a, a podcast listed on Spotify and I click it like today, I'm listening to Neil deGrasse Tyson. I, I like hearing the shit he says. I actually think he's kind of pompous in some ways. Like he likes to interject and he cuts people off a lot. And it's like, before they get to the question they were trying to ask and they eventually, because of the nature of that conversation, always end up right back to where that person was asking that question anyway. But you got some extra filler content that kind of came in to round out yeah. the edges of what yeah. the information Neil, Neil being given is. definitely a little pompous. Can I tell you what bothers me? Just a real quick sidebar about Neil deGrasse Tyson when he goes on Rogan <laughs> and he talks about uh, UFOs. Or, you know, whatever, UAVs are yeah, yeah, yeah. called now. UAPs. UAPs, okay. I, you, you and I were talking before we started recording this. You and I are both kind of have Fox Mulder syndrome and that we want to believe. Like, right. we think it would be cool <laughs> if that stuff were real. I don't know if it is. I, I, I've, I, I've, I'm, I'm highly skeptical that we've been visited by extraterrestrial life in spaceships. 
but I'm open to the possibility and I'm very interested in hearing conversations about it because I, I, I am always all open to the fact that I don't know shit about shit. I'm like, this absolutely could be true. And man, it would be kind of cool if it was. I hate the logic he used is to debunk UFOs. He's like, everybody's got a camera on their iPhone and yet no one has gotten a perfectly clear, non-blurry video of a UFO. And he uses that like it's evidence that they don't exist. I'm like, okay, then by that standard, like prove like the F-16 exists, <laughs> right? Like there are all kinds of things that we know, uh, aerial craft that we know exist, military craft, only because the United States government told, told us, us about that them. it's right, real right, right. and showed us pictures of it. If I said, if there were, if, if, for years and years, the SR-71 was top secret. Yeah. The, 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 it was uh, one of my favorite planes when I was a kid. Uh, yeah, me too. It's super cool. The, the, the stealth bomber was super secret. If I would have gone to Neil deGrasse Tyson in like 1989 and said, prove the stealth bomber is real. Right. They already had an entire fleet of those fucking things, but he couldn't have done it. And if he saw a stealth bomber go flying over with a 2024 <laughs> iPhone 14, his footage of it would have looked exactly like this footage everybody has a UFO. So I'm not saying that they exist. I'm saying that the fact that no one has gotten like a footage of them that looks like it comes from a Star Wars movie on an iPhone <laughs> is pr it's proof of nothing. Right, right. It's it proof of the fact the that kid. like shooting shit in the sky that's moving at a high velocity with an iPhone is going to look like shit 100% of the time. That's the only <laughs> thing you've proved. So I'm sorry, Neil deGrasse, that just drives me nuts. And Joe never pushes back on it. Uh, I mean, he's clear. He's, he says he wants to believe, and I and he and, and he's also not there to kind of change people's opinions. You either are of the ilk or you're not. And well, I, yeah, I, totally I get, get it, that. but I would just be like Neil, respectfully, like you're a smart guy. Like that argument is infantile. Like don't say that. That's beneath you to try to make that. that argument. I can agree with. Yeah, I there's a hundred more convincing arguments against any of these things being alien spacecraft, and that one is just it's just idiotic for the reasons I just stated. <laughs> so. Sidebar aside. Yeah, yeah. I'm I, sorry for the that's sidebar. That's my point is that whenever – if I want to – like like Ben, for example, he – I we talk about – like I, or so we filmed the thing today yes. for uh, for his book and just in general about the new podcast. That is – if you're a salesperson, that's the fucking podcast you want to listen to because this dude, he's got the know-how. And so if he can get into a nuanced subject and talk about this thing or the other thing, like specific nuanced things, there's real value to that. And being able to find those things – means I'm going, if I can search for those things, if they're indexed, I'm going to find them and look for the things that I'm looking to find information about. So, and, but, but these, this is somebody who easily could just be an absolute fucking cutthroat on TikTok, but because TikTok is this dance app to other people or whatever, <laughs> it's like, like if he got be real, he could do a be real where he's like, this is the thought I'm having right now in this moment. And it could be fucking about anything, but these are real, like he'd be in this upper echelon of people that are even one, know about the app, two, using the fucking thing, and then three, putting out useful content that people would give a shit about. That's such a compelling argument, Johnny, and, and you're, <laughs> you're convincing me, okay? I don't wanna make it sound like you're not. In fact, I might even go so far as to say at this point, I believe you're right and I'm wrong, <laughs> which is like, it, it's progress, okay? 
what I am telling you, and you said if you're a salesperson, Ben's podcast is a great one to listen to. And I think it's so true because the, the beautiful thing about Ben Lawrence is that his, the entire philosophy of his book that, his, that he's written and the methodology that has helped him close tens of millions of dollars of sales on not more. Every, every continent except Antarctica is that he is genuinely, no bullshit, a servant-hearted guy. And the theme of his book, and the reason why he titled it The Heart of the Wolf, is he contrasts the popular misconception of wolves, figuratively and actual literal wolves in the wild, as these lone, cold-blooded killers, when in fact the alpha wolf is valued precisely because of its ability to lead the pack. Yeah, but the alpha and wolf doesn't exist pack. outside of captivity. The alpha wolf only exists in situations where they're in captivity and one of them has to rise at the top. In nature, there is there is no alpha wolf. Well, there's, they're a pack. There's a guy who's studying the wolf packs in Yellowstone who'd you know, contradict that view. But irrespective. The, the I want to see the hard data. The, well, uh, <laughs> I can't think of the name of the book off the top of my head. I can't even remember who said the medium is the message. God, it's driving me nuts. <laughs> anyway, um, God, it's right on the tip of my tongue. Uh, the, but the concept, however, is that a, a genuine, an approach motivated by servant leadership and service to the pack is what will lead to long-term and the largest success and the most fulfilling success. And Greg Woodman, you talked Marshall about McLuhan? His, Marshall McLuhan. Marshall <laughs> McLuhan. McLuhan. Damn it. In yes. the first chapter yes. of the Understanding Media, The Extensions of Man, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Published in 1964. Yeah, you should know who McLuhan is because his he, he is he is very important to the institution of mass media. Well, then he should be on fucking TikTok. I think he's dead. Oh, okay. Well, then yeah. that's uh, then I should start the TikTok. Luckily for him, because he doesn't have to get, be on TikTok. <laughs> I'll be yeah. Well, he'd have something to fucking say about. It. I'll be McLuhan's nuggets, and I'll just regurgitate a bunch of shit that he says in his books. And, and, and I and guarantee you'll, uh, you'll, you'll that TikTok will blow the fuck up. You'll get a following, and that's what I was getting to. Ben, Greg, me, we're all incredibly uncomfortable making ourselves the center of attention. But nobody else is going to do that. I know. I know. I'm just telling you this is the obstacle that when you were trying to push all of us to do this, there is this thing in our brain that is telling us like, hey, ah, this is like some weird dance app from China and it's like 16-year-olds doing weird dances and fucking lips. Right. So that's problem number one. Problem number two is imposter syndrome. I don't think imposter syndrome as much as – I, I honestly, I think imposter syndrome is a much bigger problem for people in generations younger than mine and basically everyone in the oligarchy of this country since the late 1970s, <laughs> may, may, maybe the mid-80s. So like a large portion of people. Yeah, yeah. Um, again, that, that's it. The, the failures and the stupidity of our cultural elite and all the things happening in U.S. and global culture and politics as the masses pushing back against it, that's another podcast. Uh, going back to where we are and all these, 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 these little bite-sized nugget social apps, I recognize the power of it. And what you said to me about Ben 
if he got onto and understood be real, he would have an amazing competitive advantage because he would understand the app, right? Just that fact that he was there and his competition wasn't. Yeah. It's like wide open. You know, you could just conquer land left and right because and there was nobody else contesting. Worse it. than I that, get it. it's a fucking free for all because his competition is minimal because other people that are doing it are other A, maybe they're they're fighting the good fight on fucking TikTok, but Something like Be Real wouldn't it wouldn't apply to me unless I was living that life all the time. And the point of Be Real is to kind of dispel this grandiose highlight reel that everybody plays with themselves on their Instagram and their TikToks. And so, yada, yada, yada. how do you get over for people like me who are wired up the way I am, who are of the generation that I am, that everything you're talking about it says number one, like don't put the spotlight on yourself. Don't be with that asshole who comes into the room and needs all the attention. That's number one. And number two, and this is important, going back to digital native, digital immigrant, digital immigrants have a concept of a private and a public life. Right. That just doesn't, I, I truly believe, as insofar as I can tell, does not exist in the brain of a 20-something or younger. And so we're like, oh, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if I really want, like, shit, Johnny, like, if I'm honest, I, I don't even like the fact that there are people who are Penn State fans and God love them. They're the best people on earth. I don't like them watching me for an hour on TV <laughs> with a commercial break every five minutes. I sure as shit don't want to be vulnerably available to Tom, Dick and Harry every single day at a random moment. So everybody can see how like, you know, depressing or mundane or bizarre my life is or how messy my bedroom is. I, I, I like that to me, that's my private life. I'm guarded about it and I'm resistant to making myself the center of attention. So how do you bust through all of that? I think you realize that if you don't do it, somebody else is going to. So it's not like you're sparing anybody from having to endure that thing taking place in the first place. That's a good point. And then on top of that, you, and wouldn't that? you rather it be you than that person? You're more interesting than that person. Well, Shit. certainly I would like to capitalize off the benefits of the gains of that versus yeah. the other person. Yeah, but sure. But th the thing is, is like you, most people feel like they don't have anything interesting to say. And I find that to be the opposite. I feel like most people I talk to in any profession, in any industry, have something to say that I can learn from some sort of parallel concept that runs between the two things, especially with like music and video. That happens a lot because of two media creation orientations. But when I look at... Ben, like I, I kind of said to him today after we were done filming, I was like, look, I would love to have you on my podcast just to kind of talk about what your thoughts are, like an active dissecting of the music industry, where things are going, what's happening, what you think might be a tangible, because I deal, so one of my, my great mentors, Jeff Hoffman, started Priceline in the early 90s. He later, uh, he meets Chris Kirkpatrick, who lives in Clarion, Pennsylvania at the time, and he lived in, uh, Jeff lived in Akron, Cleveland area. Uh, they connect long story short. He's not able to kind of make things work with him at first, but he's like, why don't you go down to Florida and do this stuff with Disney, yada, yada, yada. That's where he meets Justin Timberlake. Then he meets Justin Timberlake and they start having this idea. He, he told me a story about how he walked in the room with a board of people that he works with, with the, like, these creative endeavors. And was like, I have this group of guys, four guys, they're going to get together. They're going to sing in harmony together. And they're not going to play instruments. They're just going to go on stage and like dance and sing. And people laughed him out of the fucking room. Like who would ever watch this? Because at least the Beach Boys are playing the fucking drums and playing guitar and this, that, and the other thing. Who's going to watch this? Well, Backstreet Boys come out, and then not too much later behind that, NSYNC rolls out. And then you got 98 Degrees and LFO and all these other groups. And LFO was actually a group that he worked with. 
and he worked with in conjunction with somebody else who was a manager for the NSYNC guys. And like, just because it worked right the one way does not mean that that guy who did that for, you know, NSYNC is going to be able to push it for LFO too. And so LFO, they put out this record and their manager, their, their album's tanking. So their manager buys a shit ton of copies of the record just to certify it as gold so that he can at least say that he was a part of this record that went gold. But the albums are sitting in a fucking warehouse somewhere. So it's not doing anybody any good. And that fucking wool over the eyes bullshit has been pulled in every industry and every avenue you can possibly think of. That fake it till you make it kind of scenario, we find out is a little bit more like, uh, you might want to focus on trying to make it or be something genuine or this, that, and the other thing. So LFO kind of disbands and a, a couple of the guys didn't want to go with the other manager but wanted to go with Jeff. We're like, hey, we're going to start this other group, uh, Element, whatever the fuck they were called, uh, Element, I don't know what the fuck they were called, <laughs> Element something, maybe just Element. Marshall McLuhan. And so they go to Jeff and they're like, we want to write records and we want to, we want a fucking platinum record. So they do the Aladdin 2 soundtrack, which was like a straight to VHS real release. But anything Disney at that point that went to VHS was a platinum record because of the fucking, the album sales that go along with it. So now do they have the album out there? Are they known as LFO? Are they this group that's big and, and famous under the, under the guise of like a la NSYNC, Backstreet Boys, 98 Degrees? No. Do they have a platinum plaque on their wall and are they laughing all the way to the fucking bank? Absolutely. So you have to be practical about what you think you're – we have this idea in our heads of like where we want to be and what the outcome is supposed to be and how we're supposed to get there and what that's supposed to look like. And it's so fucking seldom the case and we're so object to wanting to be able to accept that it could be something different and re realistically in my experience, something way fucking better. I'm so glad and thankful that Relic Hearts never signed with any record label. We never signed with any management company. We never signed with this, that, and the other thing because with those things, unless you have somebody that – unless your team behind you – and that's really what any business building is, is team building. If you don't have the perfect fucking storm of a team behind you, you're not going to get the results you want. You're not going to get the outcome you want, and you're not going to end up anywhere near what you thought your ambition was leading you toward. And so when I think about the person, they're like, why, why you over somebody else? It's like I, I think it's just as easy to say why not. And so if I do that – and that has been my benchmark always. Like I'll try anything twice, and if they can do it, why can't I? Well, sometimes you get fucking slapped in the mouth and you figure out why you can't. I have friends that are in bands that do things a different way, and I'm like, man, I could never do it that way. But I love what they do. Yeah. And somehow you got to get to this point where you're like – comparison can't be the death of your art. You got to be able to be like, I can celebrate the fact that this guy's got to win and mine thing is this thing. Sure. Like we deal with it just in the small, so just to scale it back into like the Penn State arena, right? We've got how many Penn State podcasts do you think exist total right now? Well, or probably, I thought but maybe about a dozen. I'd say, so round high to say 20, yeah. right? Now, of those 20, I pretty confidently would say that obligatory is in the top one because you guys were not, one. I mean, not anymore. We haven't done it. Well, not, we're not, yeah, yeah. well that's a byproduct of something yeah. totally else. But like the idea that you guys could sit there and have these candid conversations that are not tied up in the red tape, orange tape and yellow tape of the university saying, Hey, it's gotta be 70 and sunny. And you don't say anything bad about coach Franklin ever. It's like, well, that's not really fucking service to the actual fans that are watching your games, filling up the seats, buying your fucking concessions and now your beer this year. Like I I don't want to be have my ass kissed with <laughs> some sort of opinion that I don't actually share. Like I want to be able to feel like my 
frustrations and my voice is actually heard. Well, I feel like that's kind of what we got to be through obligatory is, 100%. is that. Yeah, and I so mean, to our credit, that's what works. That's the difference between us and then Jay Paterno doing one. And Jay Paterno has a stronger claim to the tie of legacy of the throne of Penn State, you know, media and podcast world than I would say anybody else. But I don't want to watch it from this like hoity-toity position. I want to hear candid. I want to hear transparency. And that is the age we are in now. Yeah. That's the age that that transparency conflicts with the idea of privacy for you. So you say, yes. I want the privacy, but yes. the, I say, what is the privacy matter? How many alumni are out there? How many Penn State fans exist in the world right now? Get that a round number. What do you think that number is? How many 700,000 living alumni? 700,000 living alumni, but Penn State fans. There are people that have never been alumni oh, that are huge fan fucking fans. Uh, there, there were actually two studies that came out this year. The fan base is estimated around like somewhere between 1.8 to 3 million. Okay, I was going to say 1.5, so that's higher. So say, say we rounded the the middle of 2 million fans. Yeah. 2 million fans don't, don't want fucking- Don't on those numbers either. Okay, but they don't want lip service. They want to hear, they want to feel like their feelings of frustration and excitement and energy are validated through the experience of other people that and can also share. Man, like to, to your point and, and why I think Ben and Greg would be very successful on those platforms for their audiences is that people just like authenticity. Yeah. They just like, I mean, I truly I believe. I just said it to Greg. It doesn't matter if you tell me the thing that I want to hear. If you're shitting on somebody else's terrible idea, I can learn from that too. So it's not about the, the target audience of people that you meet and reach out to and are actually connecting with. It's about the people that can connect to whatever the fuck is being talked about right then and there. Especially and that can if be, you're vulnerable. Yeah, for Especially sure. Especially if you show that you're you're a little irritated or you had a really bad day. Yeah. I mean, you know, you know, Johnny, if you can get me cranked up, on some of the times where I don't know how we did it, but we just fucked up what should have been an absolute layup of a sales pitch. Right. There is one in particular, you know I am talking the Bryce about. Bryce Jordan Center. Yeah, I'll yeah, fucking okay, say that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's just name that. drop. I'm let's just name drop. I mean, just agonizing. I, I I try not to live with regrets, but there the are Reader's few Digest version is they need oh. a they need a what thirty second ad. I, thirty second spot. Okay, so the deal was that it's Bryce Jordan Center, the, the arena where Penn State basketball plays, but they also, they're a concert venue. They're celebrating their 25th anniversary. So they wanted to have a, a video made, not a 30 second ad. They wanted to have like a whole like three, two, three minute video. The sort of thing that you would charge a business client $20,000 to do. If it was a high production thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, a little they, bit they more invested, celebrating the 25th certainly. anniversary. Like worth, worth it for Bryce Jordan's name, worth fucking 25 yeah. grand after the and amount so, of money I mean, that's like, this sort of there. thing, if you, if you went to a commercial client and they said, okay, we want, you know, all these, all, all, all X, Y, and Z production assets on this timetable, this length done for these formats. I, you know, I've seen what you charge for your very good work. We're talking about tens of thousands of dollars. We're we're just trying to survive. We're coming out of COVID. Like we're trying to survive. Right. This is this is a notoriously cheap community where there is a, not a lot of money. And and and, and so you know, like I'm just I'm just trying to get enough money to pay our bills. I don't even want to be profitable. I just want to be like approaching break even, like on the <laughs> on the bottom end of, of 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 not quite break even. And so we put together a package for them where they're going to be they're going to be be able to put place commercials for their acts all throughout the mid-Atlantic and the Northeast and across Pennsylvania, their target audience is Penn Staters, right? And we were gonna produce the video for them and we were gonna air that video on the show 
And we were gonna shoot an episode of the show live from the venue where they were gonna get to come on and, and talk about all the, all the concerts, on. all of this. Like, like two, two commercials every week, airing twice a week in every one of those markets for 15 weeks, all that stuff, the production, the airing, the shit, 4,500 bucks. And not only did they not do it, Johnny, but they acted like, you know, they looked at us. We were trying like to fucking when, rob like when, when Dr. Evil did the $1 million thing. Like they were just like, they couldn't believe it. Yeah. Like I was trying to stick them up. Now I wasn't in the meeting. I shouldn't say like I was, but I was the one who put together the offer. I felt like we were treated like we were trying to stick them up. And then I saw, they ran the video they had made. I will never... <laughs> were you, were you at a game this. or were you? Yeah, I was texting you at halftime <laughs> from Beaver Stadium and I saw the piece of shit video they had put together and I'm like, I know they charged some department of yeah. Penn State. They got charged by some department internally the department, by the university charged them way more than 4,500 bucks just to make that this piece sack of shit. of shit video. I'm still mad about it. I'm still mad. And Your I audience mean, doesn't care to edit this whole thing out, but it just but that's, pisses that's, me off. That's my point is that Marong. They're, they're willing to do that. It's, it's almost like, uh, you know, it didn't really, I don't honestly feel like the, the money was the issue. Because it couldn't have been. It couldn't have been. It couldn't have been. But the problem is, without doing a spec ad, oh for my god, them, it makes can, me cry to think how what we were giving away. We couldn't give it away, and it must have just. I mean, I don't know. Bad prepping the sales team on my part. Bad salesmanship in the meetings. A failure to understand what it was. I think we you. Were saying, I think I don't you want to place the blame know. there, but I, I honestly think that that's not what it is. I mean, we're talking about a system that is completely. You know, uh, I mean, the buck stops here, Johnny. I, res I, I accept responsibility at the end of the day for that colossal, embarrassing failure, but it still just pisses me off so bad. But the embarrassing failure is the video that we saw come out because you know my benchmark for quality it's and production. It's not though, because nobody in there gives a shit. No one at the Bryce Jordan Center right now is sitting around saying, man, we really fucked up by paying, Christ knows how much to some department in Penn State where they move the money all around okay, pause. internally but if you're for a this fan, shitty video. But if you're you're a fan and you're sitting in the audience and you watch a video. I, I, I did this myself. I was watching the videos at the game I went to with my brother earlier this year. Uh, I forget what team, uh, who the fuck did we go see? Minnesota maybe. Um, and we go to the game we're watching. I'm watching the things on the Jumbotron. I'm like, oh, this is like a video that I would have done. Even though I like, I'm, I was furloughed through the university. So like, these were not my edits, but I'm looking at, it, I'm like, oh, like this is a, this is a good edit, but I can see, I can tell the fucking, I can A and B the difference between a good spot in a bad spot yeah and yeah anybody just, can that's inherent like and, and it just and, makes me sad because i love we all love penn state at our company it's why we started it and uh, you know it, it's never more painful it is never more painful than when you are told to take a hike by your alma mater because alma oh, mater yeah. alma mater means dear mother man and that's the way we feel about penn state it's like your mom telling you to get bent like, <laughs> it fucking sucks it yeah. sucks. Yeah, certainly. And I am sorry that we didn't do a good enough job selling our product. You know, that along with many, many, many other factors is why our company failed, frankly. Well, I because find it more often than we not. We couldn't sell ourselves. We couldn't sell ourselves to our mom. Right. Johnny. Yeah. My mom didn't want to buy cookies yeah. from me. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think ultimately it doesn't come down to it is the tale as old as time of it's not 
it's not what you know, it's who you know. It's not what you can pitch. It's not what you there. I don't honestly believe there would have been anything you could have pitched them. Who they went to is some fucking friend or cousin or somebody who is grandfathered into being there. And yeah. we are maybe, maybe a generation of old white guys dying off away from being able to get some new blood in there that are going to be willing to, you know, listen to these changes and make them, you know, en masse. But until then, we're, we're going to have to fucking suffer the thralls and defeat of, you know, our mom hating us. Let me talk about something else because that I can't end on this note. Certainly it's, <laughs> I'm depressed. You can see I'm very sad. I'm Audibly, thinking about got, this. Yeah. I look, businesses fail all the time. Most small businesses are labors of love. So it's like a, your labor of love fails, which is even worse. Um, and you know, the, as you know, Johnny, there are many, many, many other factors that contributed to the failure of our company that had nothing to do with a, a lack of salesmanship. That one isolated example I gave was a tremendous failure of salesmanship on everybody's part. And because I was in charge, I take ultimate responsibility. But I, it, I, I don't want to talk about it anymore because it's making me sad. So let, let me talk about just an intriguing um, aspect of what I loved while we were doing it was – you talked about the podcast we did and why it resonated with people. And, and Kevin still, or my co-host, Kevin Horn, he still travels to every Penn State football game, home right. and away. And he said he still gets, people stop him because of the TV show. He gets more people begging him to bring the podcast back. Right. I, I think the audience likes the podcast better than the TV show. And the show was the the initial product and then the podcast was just supposed to the spin -off. basically be like a like a marketing vehicle for the show but it ended up we all liked it better and the audience liked it better well there's certainly less stress involved there's less production less well, having to be there less schedule orientation it, other than the reason, can you sit down around a computer the four of you and talk the, remotely the value center of our show was that you had two guys from two different generations who both grew up rabid Penn State fans and loved not only the athletics program, but the entire university. People who could have intelligent, in-depth debates over who the best university presidents were, right? Right, right? So like loved the whole thing, the place, the school, the sports teams, and Kevin and me. And then you had an ex-football player who had played for Paterno and been part of one of our best teams and been in, been in the Rose Bowl and won a Big Ten championship and gone on and played a decade in the NFL. And then you had this lovable old Mr. Rogers character who's like the, <laughs> the retired campus mailman who was beloved by people because he was smiling behind the desk of the campus post office every day for 40 years so much that CBS came and did a 60 Minutes feature about him. I don't know, CBS might not air 60 Minutes. I don't know, I don't pay attention to what <laughs> shows are on. Anyway, uh, and it was putting those four characters together to talk about this thing that you loved and the com the weird camaraderie between the four of yeah. them. I, I have said the, the thing I loved more than anything as like the, and I, it's a very low bar. It's like this low of a bar, but the most polished broadcaster of the four and the one who has to quarterback the discussions, I never had to cut anyone off. I never right. had to hurry anyone up because when it, when it was Kevin, Brandon, Mike, and me, it was like a symphony orchestra that had practiced together forever. We just knew how to play off each other and that resonated with people. And so I'm going somewhere with this. The reason why I think the podcast 
was the thing that stuck with the audience is because on TV, our longest segment is seven and a half minutes, right. our longest segment. So we would just get going and we'd have to cut to commercial. Yeah, yeah. And maybe we fit, come back and we start picking up where we left yeah, off in the fit previous everything segment. everything in into like five or six minutes. The podcast, we could just go long form. And so the strength of why people liked us versus anyone else, like you talked about, we would be honest and real when we would be upset over a loss or when James Franklin did something mind-numbingly idiotic with clock management. Pulling Clifford on, or pulling uh, McSorley on fourth down. We'd call it mind-numbingly idiotic, right? And you would hear the anguish in our <laughs> voice when we said it. And, and we all played off each other and people loved that. They loved the raw honesty combined with the... Um, uh, the, 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 the interplay, the camaraderie that came through and that could work in a long form and, and be its distilled down to its essence and have maximum impact in a long form delivery format. And so you see like podcast has proven, disproven the conventional wisdom do we that have long short attention form was spans dead and, and we have short attention spans right. and everything's got to be quick. Turns you out know, that's true. If what I'm watching is fucking boring or not done well. Brains or not. recoil against that. Like we love in-depth conversations. We're certainly ravenous for good long form conversation, which is why I think our, the, the podcast was more successful or, or resonated more than the TV show did. And at the same time, so we're living in an age where everything we thought we knew about media is so scrambled because Joe Rogan is making $100 million releasing one three and a half hour podcast every day. And at the same time, like people are sucking you in with bullshit dancing videos that last 15 seconds. <laughs> yeah, there's a huge- I'm not watching dancing videos, Chris. It's not dancing videos, Chris. It's not just you, dancing videos. You know what I'm saying, right? Like what, that's a hell of a contrast. I say off the heels of learning how to uh, bevel from Olivia, like what, two weeks ago, three weeks ago? Yeah. I don't know what that is. I learned, I, I didn't yeah. either until I learned it. It's a dance move and yeah. I learned it from, I guess you, but in theory from Megan Trainer. I, I really got to be conserving of my synapses. I'm just going to, I'm going to skip that one. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah man, I mean, I think like, listen, in, I'm sad to see the show go just because it's fun to do. It's not fun to do because it's fun to do. It's fun to do because I enjoy seeing you guys whenever you're like, when you're on and the segments on, like I, I know I've audibly said like, that was a great fucking yeah. segment. Yeah. And that's how, you know, whenever you can concisely get that symphony to orchestrate into a, you know, single territory of just an eight minute long song, what I get out of there, I'm like, that's fucking, that whole clip is gold. Yep. If we get it out this week, that's fucking money. Right. But the podcast, I feel like, should kind of continue if that's something you guys are thinking about yeah, doing. Yeah, I think we will. I think when the dust settles and we can just do it for fun, we probably yeah. will. Well, I certainly, like, when I set out to do this, I was like, look, I don't want to, I, will, I would love to get sponsors on board. And I've talked to a couple people that are interested in jumping on. That's great. What I don't want to fall into the trap of doing is being like, I got to get this schedule. I've got to have this. Like I, more than anything, I just want to have genuine conversations with people that I find are interesting. I think that that model clearly works for Rogan, but I think it works in general for the listener of any ilk to be able to sit there and be like, these two people are having a conversation about something that genuinely matters. And so when I'm picking people that I want to have come on, I'm saying, I know what, like, I want to have Greg on. What business do I have having Greg sit on my podcast the way I talk, right? But the idea is 
omnipresent in that he is very familiar with the idea of how the importance of collaboration and what it means to come together to do what is and when we're writing a song, we call it like we do it like what's best for the song. It doesn't matter what I want. It matter. We all want things in these songs. What matters is what's best for the fucking song. That's yeah. what we're that's what we're putting out. So when I think about what value somebody like Greg brings, I think he doesn't quite see it until I'm going to sit his ass in that chair and I'm going to sit down and we're going to have a real conversation that where I can pick his brain and be like, but I don't think that that works and hear his retort to that because what he says in response to something genuinely coming from a place of all the knowledge that he has amassed and accrued himself to project forward is to give people help. He helps everybody yeah. But he, he he lacks that ability to help himself. And he, you heard him tonight. He was stressing out and you're like, ah, I just got to get this. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Yeah, there's the, the physician heal thyself is something I say to Greg all the time and try to look in the mirror and say to myself. In you fact, have to. A few times I have found myself over the last few months when I have been in tough situations. Like, for example, right before we started this season of the show, we had a corporate sponsor lined up who was going to, for the first time ever, make my life non-chaos in terms of providing financial security for the production of this behemoth. And it costs a lot of money to put the show on the air. And a new, like, vice president or whatever replaced the guy who had set up the deal and in the middle of the summer came in and said, you guys have to basically come in and dance for me again. We're starting from square run. Right. Make your pitch. And it went from we're paying for everything to you will get nothing and I don't care if you like it. Now get the fuck out. Right. And this was like we were going to air in like three weeks. And this I is had, after we had done the first episode? Yes. I had <laughs> so uh, I no, 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 no. I'm sorry. No. Not that's, that that was, that's a different sponsor who I will will not name. Who who is gave for the player you, show? It was, for, it was going to be for everything, for oh, everything. Okay, okay, okay. And um, it's a bank. We're not going to mention their name, but you shouldn't do any banking with that bank. <laughs> um, and so, yeah. And then there was another sponsor who ended up like cutting their commitment to us and, and some other folks down big time. But I, all these things, absolute misery in my life. But at that moment, I had now gone through this process twice I had had the euphoria of winning the deal and the absolute <laughs> misery of it being yanked out from under me um, with weeks to go. And I was abject terror, man. I was feeling terror in that moment. And that's when I said to myself, you know what? You need to think about the advice you would give your best friend if he was in, in this, this situation and you need to give that advice to yourself. And that's hard. Physician yeah. heal thyself is fucking hard. And so when you're talking about Greg's resistance to promoting his own brand or Ben's resistance to being a personal brand, it's because we've got Gen X guilt <laughs> and, 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 and like telling us that we shouldn't be the center of attention. And we're afraid of the vulnerability of putting ourselves out there. And in my experience, and this comes from guilt and fear, this comes off the back of being raised Catholic and then way later, like going to therapy, but not, not because of the other, but, uh, that idea is neurologically, our brains are hardwired to, if you've got the neuroplasticity available, 
your brain, when you're going through the hard thing or the difficult thing, the scary thing, the thing I'm not sure if I want to do, I don't base jumping, cliff diving, fucking, you know, marrying this person, starting this business, all those things are fucking heightened levels of stress and anxiety and fear going into them. But neurologically, what we gain, whether we fail or not, on the other side of that is a neural pathway that is at least branched out in that direction. Yeah. And nine times out of 10, you find value in that one way or the other. I, I forget sometimes that the generations just like, like we're not a full generation apart. We're like that half generation skip apart from each other. But that older generation was like, I remember getting in trouble as a kid. Like, why you gotta be the center of attention all the time? Like that was the fucking line I got. But the problem with that is, you stifle greatness and you clip the wings off of kids that are in the process of growing and being like, this is who I am and I like this thing by doing that. And the reality is you do have this genuinely intrinsic value that you bring to the table with things. So does Greg, so does uh, Ben, so do a lot of people that I know. But you limit yourself by not jumping and taking the leap. And sometimes you have to take the leap. Now, yeah. I feel like I have, wrongfully or not, asked you to kind of push through and continue to try and this, that, and the other thing with certain things with like the, the with obligatory, especially when we could have quit four years ago. Like we easily could have. And I, I mean, by the way, I don't regret any of it. I don't, I don't either. I don't either. Any of it. It's I, been, I don't live with, I really try not to live with regrets. I don't regret any of it because at the time I assessed the situation, I knew what I was getting into and, and I chose to do it. Right. Right. So I, I don't want to come across like that at all. But all of the best shit to me comes on the other side of fear. Like when we had the the uh, PBC deal fall through. It didn't yes. fall through. We fucking went down and solidified it a second time. We did the rope and dance again. Yeah. Only to have it yanked out from under us because of some, you know, inner company backstabbing. But that – I felt like I was put in a position to be in a room full of people that were way older than me that listened to what I had to say and they believed what I had to say whenever I was in that fucking room. And whenever I left, we were getting another check cut and everything was fucking going the, down. And the, I felt like – I'm the, telling you right now. I was on cloud nine being like that's the biggest thing I've ever secured in terms of a deal for myself. The marketing campaign – I have to pay you a high compliment. I'm sorry, sorry to cut you off. The marketing campaign you put together for them was really good. And it is a shame it never got to see the light of day. And that is probably your Bryce Jordan center today. <laughs> yeah, sure. Like, that is good. But worth more money. And yes. my, my yes. point is what yes. broke what broke my heart about it is simultaneously what steeled the fucking reserve in me and like the the wherewithal in me to say, they said yes. So regardless of whatever the fuck happened after that with somebody whispering in their ear and bullshitting them and convincing them otherwise, that's not that doesn't take from me that very tangible realization that I had that I could go in a room full of people that were older than me and have a lot more fucking money than I do to throw around to say, this is your brand. This is what you're trying to do. What about this idea that I came up with? I think it sells. I've got the influencers in the market in the area you're trying to grow and I can make this happen. Here's how I'll do it. These are my walkthroughs. These are my tangible walkthroughs before I get the check and I go too deep into drawing out a fucking proposal and a spec ad for you and yada, yada, yada. How do you feel about it? And they're like, we like this. We're yeah, in. We're it was like, really good. A, and that fucking felt good. Nobody will ever take that from me. Regard, you can take 100 grand from me. You're not going to take the fact that these guys were on board, hook, line, and sinker whenever we're in that room with them. And so now I walk away from that. At the very least, I'm like, I can do that again. Yeah. Put me in – and like I've, I've consistently – it's one of the few things I feel confident in about myself is that if I think I can do it and I've proven to myself that I can do it, 
I can do it again. I can repeat it. I maybe not get the same level of greatness or this, that, and the other thing, but if you put me in a room full of people with the opportunity to sell myself or what it is that I'm selling behind me, I can fucking do that. And I, and I will. And so, you know, the ups and the downs aside, that was like a really powerful moment in my life. Like in the long term of my life, like I've only been with blue white. I've only been doing things for obligatory since 2017. Yeah. So in that five year span of time, the first two, like two, two or year two or whatever, three or whatever it was, was the year I got this fucking tell all lesson in my life that really kind of changed the landscape for me because I've then approached a lot of things since then that have locked me into bigger clients that, that pay better money for video production services and this, that, and the other thing on the back of knowing like, oh, okay, the only real separation between whether or not I think I can do this and they think they can do this is whether or not they believe that I believe my own bullshit. But it's not bullshit whenever you know the, the OCD and the ADD side of my brain that goes into the production level of things and how nuanced and like detailed I like to think things out. And so to that credit, I think like it, it, when I think about things like uh, the, the podcast for obligatory, I think about how we really did get catch lightning in a bottle. You guys really did catch lightning in a bottle with that. And that's one of those things where the real production costs for something like that are so low. And it, it, much oh, like I said, yeah, whenever yeah. that, that deal pulled and we were thinking about capsizing the company back then, I, the, the sit down in Panera, you're like, we're not going to be able to cut you a check after this. And I was like, okay, this is a real place right now. Yeah. But I would look yeah. at you and I was like, you've got all the equipment to do all the same stuff you're already doing. These are things that have not gone. So literally if we can just get a few pieces in place, we could still do this and all the core mechanical pieces of that are still there. I just said, I have no regrets. And you just pointed out that we could have stopped doing it four years ago. <laughs> like I'm I've like, got a oh minor God, I, regret. I, I, I wish minor we would have done regret. that. I wish we wouldn't have done any of this. No, I don't. I don't. But you, you can't. So, you can't. But, but I think oh, then God, yeah, I, I would say the does. same thing about the podcast, though. Like what you you definitely learned since then is that the podcast has a strong, if, you know, affinity for people that like it as is, and the ability to do that. Through, and you know, we have Riverside well, FM, and, for example. Like we've got the ability to do that remotely now in a way where we can keep it up exactly in, in the format that it is just slightly different in terms of where you guys are and schedule that in a way where you guys were already doing it. We were like, Hey, you guys want to do a podcast this week? Like I love that it. it was never scheduled. It was just a conversational moment that happened after yeah. we were done talking on set. And we'd had a really good conversation down in the, you know, the basement of the first on a, you know, a Sunday or a Monday, the day after the game lets out and it's dingy and dark down there. Yeah. I mean, yes, I, in reflecting back on this little entrepreneurial journey I took that ended, as, as most entrepreneurial journeys do, with uh, your a cruise liner hitting an iceberg and then somebody <laughs> dropping a neutron bomb on it. Um, the, the, advice, the number one piece of advice I would give to anybody who was starting out and in getting into their own business is do two things with your partners. Vet your partners. Certainly. And if you've got a bad feeling, act on that bad feeling and run away. And the other thing is be honest with yourself about who they are. You know, for all the mistakes, Johnny, I have made in my relationships over the years, and they are legion, trust <laughs> The one thing I've never done that I heard everybody talk about and I'd never experienced in my life was I never tried to change my relationship partner. I always accepted them for who they were and went into it. I never said, oh, this person's great, but 
right? I never had that problem. 100% of the time, or at least 95% of the time, I was the issue in the relationship side of it, okay? It wasn't me trying to change, but I, I was absolutely the problem. It, it's not you, it's me, no, it's me. Um, in my business life, I've just transplanted that, uh, that tendency. Most people try to change their boyfriend or their girlfriend, right? I tried to change my business partners to be something that I knew they weren't. And so the main reason our company failed is not because I couldn't get the Bryce Jordan Center to buy a, a, a video and commercials from me for nickels on the right, dollar. Right, a kick in okay? the nuts. Although that, I mean, because the company would have failed anyway because you can't sell your shit for nickels on the dollar. So it's not because of that. It's because my other business partners, whom I love like family, we're not good business partners, right? We can agree on that. And it's nothing that I wouldn't say directly to their faces. Everybody just has a different position in what they can contribute. They and if they can't- They couldn't contribute what was necessary to run a successful business. And I- At least not this one. Well, which is the only one that matters because they aren't partners in any other right, business, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, like, like I, I, don't, I don't own the exact same percentage of any other S-Corps other right, than right. the one in which they are partners. Um, and I knew that about them going in, but was so determined to chase the dream that I blinded myself to it. I never did that with a girl. I did that with business. I'm like, God, I want this to work so bad. These guys would be perfect, but I can work around it. I can change it. Don't do that. Yeah. If if you you have somebody you're about to go into business with and they give you the heebie-jeebies, don't. If you have somebody you're about to go into business who you love like family, but you know they are going to sabotage the effort down the line, don't. Listen to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just yeah. be honest with yourself early on but and I you will, will say save yourself a ton of headache and heartache. And I am happy to have escaped this thing with the relationship with those three guys intact because I do love Because it could I, go any other way, I certainly. really do, exactly. And now, if we wanna let the dust settle and we just wanna make a podcast because we enjoy talking to each other, I don't care if five fucking people listen to that. I don't care if zero people listen to it because we're doing it for us and we know there will be an audience out there who will appreciate it. Yeah. But I won't have to so, show some shithead at an ad agency in right. Philadelphia my download numbers so we can pay me $5 so I can try to like keep my electricity turned on. And, and, and so I'm, I am happy. I'm happy to have escaped with my skin intact and my friendships intact because I, I value that so deeply. So what I would, what I'll end this with, cause we're yeah. at eight Oh four now. Uh, I will say that that symphony you spoke of earlier when obligatory is just the podcast and you guys are on. I think that that is the, it, it's funny that you discovered that that was like this, like secondhand residual spinoff of the show to be like supplemental and help promote it. Right. But I think finding out that as low taxing and because it requires no real value and sponsorship to be able to make it produce. Cause all of that, all that capacity already exists in house. I would say that more than anything, if you could take the time to triple down on just making sure you guys can get together and do that over the coming year and do some slow rolls into it going into the fall, 
that's something that uh, you can't really re- – that symphony is something you can't replicate. And I liken that to the boys in my band. Like I got really lucky that I've got a group of people that we want to make music. I can take an idea to somebody. Nate can do this. Dirk can do this. Nick can do this. You know, We all have this thing. These are the partners that I chose to be in bed with really. And when we're trying to create, it's like I need people that are in the boat row in the same direction. And we had a – it took a lot of come to Jesus moments along the way to get there. But you guys don't have to do that if it's just the podcast. And the only reason you had to do it for the show is because it requires so much more money and upkeep to be able to make it happen. So if a low maintenance uh, thing like the podcast could continue on, I definitely would love to see that it it comes back. I think that people would appreciate that. And if you can find a chance in life, even if it's just for yourself, and I hear artists say this all the time, and now I just heard myself say it, I finally understand it. Even if it's just for yourself, to get together with people you love and you have real chemistry with and make music with them, literally or figuratively, you gotta do that. Yes. That's what life is all about. You gotta collaborate or die. Cheers, brother. Cheers. I'm empty, but cheers. Yeah, same. (laughs) Well, dude, thanks for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Absolutely. My pleasure. I'm, I'm, I'm honored. I couldn't have asked for a better... Fifth episode. (laughs) We're always collaborating at all times with the universe. That is a wrap on another episode of the Collaborative Podcast. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed making this episode for you. And now it's time for our favorite part of the show the part where I beg you to please hit that like button, subscribe, and turn on those notifications so you never miss an episode. Don't be that guy. Follow us on all your favorite podcast platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. I want this podcast to be wherever you are, whenever you need it. Just like